the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Cheap, cheap, fun, fun. Spring is in the air and Dirt Cheap is in your neighborhood ready to deliver the perfect drinks to your doorstep. That's right. All of Dirt Cheap's convenient locations now offer delivery of their wide selections of beers, wines, and all the spirits you need. And if you're like me, nothing hits better in the springtime than a nice weeded bourbon. Ask the friendly staff at Dirt Cheap about their selection of weeders like Maker's Mark, Larceny, and so many others. Download the Dirt Cheap app and order curbside or delivery. Have fun, but be careful out there. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. Fly ball left field, hit pretty well. Back on it, he is Pollock. This ball's carrying, and this ball is gone. Evan Longoria puts the Giants on top. That's lines one, caught by Crawford. A leaping catch at shortstop to rob Mookie Betts of a hit that almost certainly would have tied this game, and who knows after that. Lux in the air, that ball's hit well. That ball's back, Duggar on the track, makes the catch to end the game. The win knocked it down, and the ball game is over, and the Giants win game three, one to nothing. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley, that's what it sounded like last night as the Giants took a 2-1 to one lead in the NLDS, and Alex, I have to finally admit that I'm wrong. What do you mean, Finally? The Giants won 107 games this year. I feel like we've been here like seven times already in the last week. That's fair. And never once did I believe that they were a legitimate contender. Never. Not once. I looked at them as the third best team going into the postseason. Yeah, you in the already National planned League. the Cardinals in the NLCS. I was planning the parade down Marcus Street. It was Actually, great. He planned it in the World Series, too. Milwaukee, by the way, is about to lose their yeah series. i mean whoever's coming out of this series they is stink. going to represent they the national stink. league in the, in the world series cardinals could have beat them yeah if the only. giants are really good guys <gasps> yeah yeah a hundred and seven win team mm-hmm. is yep. good yep they scored 800 runs on the season t-bone that's breaking news uh, i don't have the sound right no, yeah you do they scored 100 oh, more runs and allowed 100 fewer runs than the Cardinals did this year. And I was like, eh, not sure. Not sure that's going to work once we get to the postseason. It works. And as I'm watching them right now lead the Dodgers 2-1 to in this series, it makes me wonder what the Cardinals can learn from the strategy that they had last offseason. Because the Giants look like they're probably... Knock on wood, I'm probably going to be wrong again, but we'll see. Right now, as of today, if I was to give you a favorite in the National League to make it to the World Series, I think it has to be the Giants. They lead the Dodgers. I think they're better than either of the teams that could come out of the other side of the bracket. I would take the Giants. So, Alex, Tanner, from what you've seen, whether it be the Giants in particular or maybe just the postseason baseball that you've watched at large, what's the biggest takeaway that you think the Cardinals can learn from those teams? Real quick question, though. If the Giants do get to the World Series, does that mean the Cardinals are technically a World Series contender because that they beat the D- Giants in the season series? 
I could see it. Are you okay with that scenario? Yeah. So, T-Bone, if the Giants win the World Series, technically the Cardinals are the World Series winner. I think you hang a banner that says, we beat the team that won the <laughs> World Series. the World Series team. I'd be I fine like with it. that. I would celebrate that banner. That's a scratch and claw type of banner. Um, what can you learn from this series? I don't know if I put too much into it. Until I see the Giants run this style of pitching and defense all the way to a World Series crown. Like, if you get through the Dodgers, okay feel pretty good about it and sitting there and going, okay, well, maybe the strategy in the offseason is pitching and defense. But look, I know the Cardinals didn't have the pitching that the Giants had, but they did keep it a one-to-one ball game all the way into the ninth inning. So technically, they're kind of already there. I just don't know if the Giants' style is going to win them a World Series. Watching the way that the Boston Red Sox play, the Red Sox seem like a team that is just destined for a World Series because they have it all. They have solid pitching. They have a strong bullpen. At times, it can be weak. Yeah, At bit. times. <laughs> but then they have the pop in pretty much all of their lineup, and they have the speed that, that goes with Doesn't it. The Giant, don't the Giants have all that, too? Like What, what out of that mix I don't know that if the Giants have the, the pop that the Red Sox do? I don't know, man. Crawford, Posey. They definitely got pop. Longoria. It's not to the Bryant, same. It's not to the same level as. I think you view it as not the, the same Red level Sox. because it's a bunch of guys that we heading into the season viewed out as their prime because they have pop. I, Those I, guys can hit the hell out of the ball. I guess. I guess. I, it just I, it seems listen, different. Of all people, I. It's hard for me to say you're wrong because I clearly underestimated them at every turn all season long. I think. I think something that. It hinders our view of the Giants is this. When the Cardinals played them this year, the Giants were not at full health, not even approaching full health. They were without Longoria in that series. They didn't have Brian at that point in time. I I think Posey missed a couple of games in that stretch yeah. as well. Um, they, they weren't any, anything resembling the team that we're watching play right now. And you add into all of that, the pitching that they have, and I think that's what's been most impressive to me about them this postseason. Man, they have so many arms that every single guy that comes out of that bullpen or that starts a game, I trust them to get a bunch of outs against really good hitters on the opposition. So for me, the lesson that I'm taking from the uh, from the Giants, but you could take it from the, the Red Sox or the, um, the Braves have some of this. Man, it's just the depth that these teams have. They legitimately go 26 deep, and the Cardinals didn't. The Cardinals were a 20-strong man roster. Hashtag fear the deep. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's the depth. Hashtag fear the deep. That's the Cardinals hashtag for next season. I've been waiting to find and a I spot to put that in. For me, that's the lesson going into this offseason. We've talked so much about the top of the market, guys like Seager or going out and getting a front-end starter like Scherzer. And don't get me wrong. They signed those guys. I'm going to be happy about it. But it's probably those lower-end signings that the Giants made all offseason, that guys like Kike Hernandez, who came up huge for the Red Sox in that series, those are the guys that could make an even, on the margins, a bigger difference for the Cardinals going into next year. Yeah, the depth to me is the big thing, too. And to me, it's mostly just from the bench, because I think the Cardinals' bullpen was six to eight guys deep, depending if you wanted to throw Flaherty and Hudson into that conversation because they were coming off of injuries. It was the bench that was the biggest thing for the Cardinals. You didn't have that 
Jock Peterson that was going to come off the bench in, in the first three games be three for three with two home runs and a single. I mean, you didn't have that guy. You didn't have that guy you said, that's who we turned to coming off our bench. And honestly, the other thing for me is just situational hitting. And I know it was a one-game sample, so it's hard to read into. But the Cardinals were, what, 0 for 11 with runners in scoring position? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Brewers. They're not doing situational hitting. They're not 16. winning. 0 for 16. And then you look at... The Red Sox, runners at second and third, what do they do? They get the ball in the air to win the game. So I think that's my two biggest takeaways. The situational hitting will come. I th- I believe I think that was just a one-off, and you're dealing with elite pitching from the Dodgers, but I'm with you. To me, it's depth in the Cardinals. To me, the biggest one to look at in the offseason is how can you supplement the bench? Is it weird that I still am not buying into the, gi- the Giants? <laughs> Like Wait, this whole time, this, this whole time, like even the fact that they're up on the Dodgers right now, like I'm looking at it saying the Giants just don't have the roster made for a World Series win- winner. And maybe that's maybe that's the fault of the last few World Series winners. That's what I was going to. I think this is if the Dodgers don't come back, because if they do, all of this stuff goes out the window. If the Dodgers don't come back in this series, this is going to be the first time in like five years that you don't have a super team winning the World Series. I, I guess you could well, maybe you make a super the argument. Team, but back in 2012, like it's a super team from years past. Oh, the Giants. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's the difference this year is like we had the Dodgers. We had the Cubs. You had the Astros. The, these teams that either tanked or spent $200 million plus to put all stars at every position. And this year feels different, and it feels like it might not result in one of those teams. Even if the Red Sox end up going to and winning the World Series, that's not a super team. That's a team that's built on on depth, frankly. And they, they've got a lot of guys that are quality players, but, I mean, a lot of their players are not even national superstars yet. They traded the guy that was the superstar in Mookie Betts, and now two years later, they're potentially going on a run. So I, I think there's something to what you're saying there. I don't know if there's a national superstar team. Maybe, I guess, the winner of the Astros-White Sox series, T-Bone? Like, would you consider one of those? I mean, obviously the Astros, when you think of the names that they have, but even the White Sox, do you look at them and say, well, that's a that's an all-star stacked lineup? I don't really look at either one of those because that's more of a lineup. that's more of a depth build, isn't it? For the White Sox, like they they stunk so bad to get to this point. Like, I don't yeah. know if you have that team other than the Dodgers I mean, anymore in the playoffs. White Sox are probably the closest thing. Cause I know the names of the White Sox, but I watch a lot of baseball. A lot of people I don't think could. Yeah, name I don't a lot know of the guys on could. that White Sox. Team. I, I think the reason why some could is just because of the prospect rankings. I mean, they went out and they Maybe. got Luis Robert. You, you look at you on Moncada, like Eloy some Jimenez. Of, some of the guys that they have were top prospects because they tanked. And that's how these super teams largely get built. The Cubs tanked and then they you see the the talent coming and we hear about them in the minor leagues. Uh, same thing was true for the Astros before they won that World Series. And I, the Dodgers are different because they're different than everybody. They just go about things in a way that nobody else can or will. So I, I do think in some ways, if the Giants win this series, I don't know that it's the end of the super team era, but it's a pause in the super team era. And I think if you're a Cardinals fan, that's got to make you feel pretty good because the Giants are closer to the Cardinals style of build than the Cubs or the Dodgers ever were or ever will go- are going to be. That's more in line with the way that the Cardinals can build a team. The, the Cardinals can do what the Giants did this year. They can build that way. They can't build the way that the Dodgers do. It's never going to happen. I kind of view the Giants on being as a verge of coming into a super team. And the reason I say is because they have a lot of young talent. I believe they're going to re-sign Chris Bryant. 
everything that we had kind of heard or some of the rumors that you'd heard was that this year was going to be the year that they were going to spend because they had some money coming off of the books. Like they're going to lose Johnny Cueto coming off the books. Oh, I think no, Johnny Cueto. I think this is the beginning of a super team in San Francisco. I, I truly believe that they're going to bring back Chris Bryant, I think. And if those veterans, Brandon Crawford, who looks fantastic, Buster Posey plays well. Brandon Belt, he's not even playing in this Dodger series. Yep. He's out with a broken thumb. He's back, and then you spend a little bit more money. I'm telling you, I think they're the team to beat in the National League West for the next two, three yeah, years. Yeah, but I don't know if you would consider them a super team because they're not like the Dodgers that go out there and trade for Mookie Betts and acquire David Price's contract and trade for Trey Turner and Max Scherzer. Like, they're doing it more towards the Cardinals' style because the veterans are stepping up, right? Goldschmidt, Molina, Wainwright, Posey, Crawford, Belt, like Longoria, who hits the bomb last night. Like, you're closer to that style. My only hesitation with saying that they can get the Cardinals can be on the same level as the Giants is the manager because isn't Gabe Kapler strictly all about the splits and kind of the matchups? And I know Mike Schilt doesn't play that way. Yeah, no, there's some truth to that. The other thing, the reason why I'm not sure that they're going to be this super team for years to come Tanner is because Evan Longoria is 36 Buster Posey is about to be 35 Brandon Crawford is about to be 35 I'm not counting those guys out I I was obviously too low on them all year long but I don't expect them to extend their prime for years to come this might have been a one-off this might have just been one miraculous season and they're not going to be able to do this again in in the next couple of years but even if they do, like this is this is an awesome season for them. So that this is not to discredit anything they've accomplished. But the Dodgers, when they were a super team, and still are, frankly, they did it with guys in their prime. Mookie Betts is in his prime right now. Cody Bellinger was supposed to be in his prime. Seager, Turner, all these guys are they're not over and over the hill in their 30s. So that's the biggest difference to me. But for the Cardinals, that I think they can catch the Giants in a way that. They probably were never going to with the Dodgers. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Kylie McDaniel. He's a prospects writer and an MLB insider for ESPN.com. I want to get his thoughts on this. What's the lesson so far from the postseason that the Cardinals can learn? We'll talk to Kylie McDaniel about that in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, Alex, it's blue season. It is? James Neal made the roster, and he's exactly the type of voice that this team needed. You mispronounced it. James, the real deal, Neal. We'll tell you about him next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. He's a character. He's been, uh, you know, he's been on a lot of winning teams for a reason. Personality in the room goes a long way, and you know, fortunately, we've we've had that in this organization for a long time. With a lot of good people, and uh, you know, just guys that generally like being around other guys and, and being a hockey player. That's uh, Robert Bortuzzo talking about the personality that James Neal brings to the table. I had a little bit of a uh, brain fart there for a second. I apologize. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Robert Bortuzzo talking about James Neal and some of the the vibes that he brings Good to vibes only. the dressing room. Alex, I think this is a really interesting storyline for the Blues this year because you've been talking about this basically since they lost Pat Maroon, that they've been looking for that voice, that voice that's in the dressing room that keeps everything light. Man, everything that I've heard from the players seems to suggest that James Neal's biggest impact on this roster, he he might be really good on the ice, 
But the biggest impact he might have this year is actually in the dressing room. What have you made of some of the quotes that we've been getting over the really the last couple of days, but all preseason for sure, about what James Neal is as a person as much as he is as a player? Yeah, All of the comments from the teammates, the coaching staff, Doug Armstrong, heck, from James Neal himself, sounds like a guy who is bringing a fresh new emotion into the locker room. The, the 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 problem is I haven't been able to see it in person because we're we're not allowed in there. But I mean, look, if he's anything close to what Pat Maroon was for this team, it's only going to benefit these guys. And look, James Neal's got a track record of being a part of good teams that have success. And don't take for granted the fact that he is a big part of those teams. Like the time he spent in Pittsburgh, he was in the playoffs every single year with them, and he was a guy who scored forty goals, twenty seven, twenty one, twenty three. He was one of the top players for the Pittsburgh Penguins with Crosby and Malkin and Chris Kunitz. Then you go to Nashville. The only time that Nashville was like considered a contender for a Stanley Cup were the times that James Neal was a part of them. Goes to Vegas, he wins there. Calgary, no coincidence that he was a part of a team that went to the playoffs the last time Calgary's been in the playoffs. And then Edmonton made the playoffs with Edmonton. He's been a part of good teams his entire time. But the personality, what Robert Bortuzzo just said there, I think is what sets this over the edge. If he scores you 15 goals, great. That's more than probably Sanford or Blay were going to score for you. Oh, guaranteed. And he's certainly Whoa. not going to make as many uh, mistakes Sanf- as Sanford Sanford scored like to. 12. Yeah, I know. It's almost 15. He also scored four for the other team. T-Bone, can you believe this guy? <laughs> that was actually really good. That's really negative. I, I, plus minus, I don't know what it was we for will- last year, but I can tell you the minuses were directly by him. We will never again be able to use the mic drop. Come to the Garden, Sanford. No, we're always, you come to the Garden, Sanford. No, it's fine. James Neal's going to bring a presence into that locker room. And the fact that this team's getting back to going out and spending time together and being an actual team the way that the Blues have thrived in the past, he's going to be an interesting development with this. I don't know what his impact is, but I have a feeling it's going to be a positive one. I think so, too. And I think it's such an important thing to have in in this kind of locker room. And I, I found it interesting that Craig Berube also kind of echoed some of the sentiments that Robert Bortuzzo had. This is him talking to the fast lane yesterday. He brings a lot of uh, energy and um, enthusiasm to the game. I, it was real noticeable for me, him talking to players, talking to young guys on a bench, uh, just having that energy around the locker room and just one of those guys, like he just, when he walks into a room, uh, he just brings everybody up a little bit, you know. He's got that type of energy. And uh, so I think getting, you know, for me, he earned a spot. And uh, we'll see how it goes. And um, um, I think he's going to be a valuable piece. Sounds we like sh- Chief's already skiing. <laughs> we should make this very clear. Nobody's Pat Maroon. Nobody. Yeah. And so expecting James Neal to be... Pat Maroon is is a fool's errand. It's not going to turn out that way. But if James Neal can bring some of the lighthearted nature that Robert Bortuzzo, frankly, also brings to to the locker room, that's a really big deal, man. And so for the big deal, James Neal. No, it's the real deal. God. You can't just like add you can't it switch it, man. I tried to go that's that like route. BK's buildup. It's bad. Uh, for the real deal, James Neal. I think his biggest impact this year for the Blues is going to come in the locker room. And they've been missing this type of a presence. We thought maybe Kyle Clifford could bring in it. I'm not sure that that really happened the way that we expected it to. But this is a guy that is going to impact things on the ice. And that allows him to impact things inside of the locker room as well. I'm really excited about him, man. I, I actually... 
I don't expect him to have the same impact on the ice in terms of goal production, maybe as Mike Hoffman did a year ago. I think he fits in better with the Blues, their style of play, systematically, everything that goes along with being a St. Louis Blue. I think James Neal makes more sense for this team than Mike Hoffman ever did. See, I think I think James Neal might surpass Mike Hoffman's point total this season with the Blues. Like, I think James Neal could honestly get to 18 goals for you if he plays all season. And that's the caveat with this. You don't know what injury happens. Maybe he just doesn't pan out. But he provides what Pat Maroon provides, but with a little bit more of a scoring punch. When he scored the hat trick in game one, BK, that wasn't net front presence. That was a snipe that he had in the game. The last goal he scored in the final preseason game was net front presence. He provides both. He's going to play on the second power play unit, I would imagine, because he's that net front presence for you. And look, the impact that I think he's going to provide, yeah, the locker room's important, but he's also going to provide some of these younger guys another guy to talk to in terms of a pure goal scorer, a guy who has scored 40 goals in the NHL. They can pick the brain. Jordan Cairo, Robert Thomas, um, heck, even a Pavel Buchnevich can be taking tips from this guy, Jake Neighbors, and figure out what I got to do to get to this level. He's going to be a key component. Jake Neighbors is a big one because big one. they have similar stylistically in terms of the way that they play. It seems like Jake Neighbors projects to be a James Neal type of player in terms of the body. I'm not saying he's going to be a 40-goal scorer. I want to make that clear, but uh, th- this is a good guy to have in that locker room with with the Jake Neighbors. What would you take? Somebody on our text line just proposed this. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Who will have more goals this year, James Neal or Zach Sanford and Sammy Blay combined? James Neal. Uh, Zach Sanford's going to be playing on their third or fourth line and the same with Sammy Blay. Uh, they're not going to be getting top six minutes like they were getting in St. Louis. I would say James Neal. I wouldn't be surprised if Neal hits 20 in a season. If that is true. This will go down as one of the smartest and most shrewd signings of the Doug Armstrong era. This is a steal. For is that what Neal. a shrewd means? Yeah. With Alex Ferrario, Taylor Hendricks, and I'm insult. Brandon Kiley. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get into some questions and answers coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Kylie McDaniel of ESPN.com about the Cardinals' top prospects and what's the biggest lesson that this Cardinals team should learn from the way that this postseason is being played. We'll ask Kyle McDaniel next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Very happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by MLB Insider for ESPN.com. He is Kylie McDaniel joining us here on the show. Kylie, we always appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? Doing great. Always surprised that it's still the celebrity line when I call in, but I'll take it. <laughs> hey, we're, we're, we keep it that way just for you. It's actually changed names for everybody else, yeah. but for Kylie McDaniel, we keep it the celebrity line. Other other people just get the, the, the Brown and Crouppen line. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's like for fishing. I got the celebrity line. It's <laughs> yeah. a whole different thing. Exactly. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, Kylie, I did want to ask you, starting things out with the, the postseason as a whole and what lessons there are to be learned here in St. Louis from the teams that are still remaining. If there is one overarching theme to the postseason for teams that have succeeded thus far, and I know we're still early on, what would you say it is that maybe the, the Cardinals could learn for, for this offseason? I mean, going through the Cardinals history, you can probably see this. It's not always the best team that wins the series or wins the whole thing. And I think it's probably even more uh, in in basketball or hockey where it's like one star player gets hot, one goalie gets hot. It's not necessarily one player getting hot, 
but the best team doesn't win these series. Like the way it's set up with the Dodgers and Giants are 107, 106 wins and they're playing each other in like the first real round. Like it's just not equitable. It's kind of impossible to make it equitable. And the results aren't that way either. So just get in the dance and see what happens. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the Cardinals have been somewhat successful in that. Get in there enough times and you'll win sometimes. Kaylee, I'm always curious from a national perspective after a a one game wild card like that. And we all know the Cardinals regular season, the 17 game win streak, the struggles that they had towards the start of the year. Does a a one game exit from the Dodgers, but it was a walk off home run with Chris Taylor make you more positive or opt or skeptical about the off season for John Mosellock? No, I mean, he's definitely got some some challenges to solve here, but I I don't think anybody, you know, two months before the playoffs started thought they would be anywhere near that and to go, you know, blow for blow with what I think is the, you know, the best team in baseball. Obviously they didn't, you know, fell one game short of having that record wise, but that was the team even with the, before the wild card started, I picked them to win the world series because I just think they're the best team and we'll see if it ends up playing out that way. But uh, yeah, I think the I think the team stood up uh, even more to the best competition than I would have expected. So I think that's good momentum going into the next year. And you can go through player by player and say like this guy beat expectations, this guy beat expectations. These guys are getting paid a lot and you know performing what they're what they're being paid. Which you know not even every playoff team can say that. Like the you know the Dodgers still have like Gavin Lux where they thought he was going to be a superstar and they're like, well is he like an everyday guy? Do we have to resign Chris Taylor? Like how do we handle this? And you know like the Cardinals have like Tyler O'Neill put up you know more water than the than Arenado and Goldschmidt. Like anybody saw that coming? Kylie, when you look at specifically that Giants Dodgers series, and you you mentioned you picked them to the Dodgers to win the World Series this year, I I did as well. I thought they were the best team coming in. I've underestimated the Giants seemingly at every turn this season, despite the fact that they won 107 games. Are the Giants better than we gave them credit for? What, what what's going on here with San Francisco? I mean, I was uh, I was on San Diego radio early in the season, and they asked me about the Giants when you know they just had a couple game lead and were like 50 games in. I'm like, oh, it's like an overperforming old team but with a good coaching staff and a good front office, and like they're kind of overperforming type of team anyway. And they're still an old team that is overperforming. So like that was technically correct. It's just sort of like people that thought Mark Pryor or Tim Lincecum would break down, they just like forgot Tim Lincecum's Cy Youngs were going to happen before he broke down. Uh, so like at some point, like that's what they are and they have so much money to spend this off season that I assume they're going to go after, you know, Seager and Correa and those sorts of guys. So it's going to be a different team next year, probably with a higher true talent level. But, uh, I think this is sort of underlines that they're, you know, Gabe Kapler and his staff, a big staff and sort of a, a progressive staff in terms of how many and, uh, what sorts of people they have there. And then also Farhan Zaidi has now a very long track record at three different teams, of being able to engineer stuff that you didn't think was possible. Like now it just seems like we should expect similar to the Rays, whatever all the projections say, just like round them up five games. And that's probably <laughs> what will happen. All right, Kylie, I'm going to try and give you an opportunity to uh, not ruin Cardinals days off season by what you just said. If the giants are pursuing guys like Seager and story, does that put the Cardinals still in the opportunity to sign one of those guys this off season? I wouldn't say it's not going to, but I mean, you guys maybe can speak to this, the history of this more than I can, but given what they're paying Goldschmidt and Arenado, do you think there's room for a third guy making that much money? Because there's an argument right now with the with the Yankees paying all the money to Stanton and then all the money to Cole, and then they're going to have to decide, do they want to go after one of these big shortstops or do they want to sign Judge to an extension or do they get rid of Glaber Torres when he's a free agent in a couple of years? Like they kind of have to pick who the third one's going to be. Maybe they don't have a third one making big money. I don't know if any team can really afford to go, you know, 25 million plus on three players. So I just assume the answer is no, but it's not that it's not possible. Yeah, that's that's something that I've been 
kind of openly wondering all season long is both the willingness and the ability to do so. I, I think the way that they're structured right now allows for a little bit more flexibility because you've got guys like Edmund and Carlson and O'Neal and Bader who are all relatively cheap, at least for the next couple of seasons. You look at some of the guys that are coming up with Gorman and you know as much about this as anybody. Uh, Gorman and Walker's not too far away at this point. Some of the young pitching that's making its way through the system and that allows for more flexibility probably than a team for example like the Yankees that being said the history of the Cardinals would certainly suggest that they're not going to be in on these guys because they almost never go seven plus years at 25 plus million dollars on anybody much less a free agent that's going to be 28 or older so I I don't know where to come out on that to be honest with you but the the need makes sense especially for Seager because it's a left-handed shortstop and that's a plug-and-play guy with their lineup right now well, and you can also look at the payroll. I just pulled it up, and there's, you know, depending on how the options get decided, like there could be $50 million coming off the books. So, yeah, it's about 60. And also, like, you know, the payroll, I'm sure, could go higher. So it's like, yeah, there is room to sign that guy. The issue is you want to, if you look at what Hein Bloom did, which obviously has worked out well coming into the Red Sox, he could have signed Mookie Betts. I don't think it was his call. I think ownership made the call for him. But it was like, you could give him that money, or you could spread it across 13 guys and get three prospects for him. And obviously, that seems to have worked out well. Who knows the alternate scenario where they keep Betts? Uh, but I think there's a sort of a movement between the sort of smartest teams that get the best results, best bang for the buck is to spread that money around because the best teams typically have like, you know, two too many hitters and five too many starters and a couple too many good pitchers going into the year. And then by the playoffs, you're like, ah, oh, we might be a little shorthanded, but we're better than these other teams that are very shorthanded. Like that tends to be what the smart teams do that, you know, reach their ceiling. Uh, so I would think that the approach would be maybe spend 20 million on, you know, up to four years on somebody uh, ironically, I think the, the player in this big shortstop class that may settle for a one-year deal is Javi Baez, but I don't really see him signing with the Cardinals. Maybe, maybe that's just me. No, no, I think you're, I think you're, I think you're <laughs> right on with that one. After what we saw with uh, his last couple of weeks with the Mets here, Kylie. You know what you just said about the prospects and what the Red Sox did is interesting for the Cardinals' perspective because uh, fans are talking about these younger players in the system and when their opportunity is going to be. Guys like Nolan Gorman, guys like Juan Yepes, who everyone was excited about in this wild card game. Uh, can you see the Cardinals going that direction where they say, you know what, rather than go after one of these big names, let's give some of these younger guys an opportunity and just kind of fill in the gaps with other people well that's kind of what i talked about like going for depth because if you you know look at the infield you would assume arenado and goldschmidt are kind of locked into the corners gorman's two best positions are probably third base and first base obviously he's been playing a lot of second base this year because that spot is less nailed down but then with sosa and deong and edmund it's like well you have enough players there there's probably two decent starters in that mix somewhere maybe maybe one maybe three you never know but throw him in that mix, that then gives you that scenario where it's like, oh, you have kind of one too many good players. That's the kind of problem good teams have. Uh, do you, you know, kick Edmund to the outfield? Well, now, you know, O'Neill and Carlson seem pretty good and Bader seems solid. Like, uh, if you go to Universal DH, then all of a sudden that's, you know, that solves that problem, which I think will probably happen with the next CBA. So I, I think that sort of puts you in a position where, say, by midseason next year, possibly opening day next year, Gorman enters the fray and can play at a lot of these positions. I think he can play at passable corner outfield. Obviously, he'd fit at DH. Like, it's basically everywhere except for shortstop and center field he could fit. And that, rather than, if you look at like what San Diego did bringing in Kim, as that sort of you know left-handed bat can play a lot of positions, he didn't play that well and cost almost $30 million. Doing that with Gorman then frees you up to spend that money somewhere else 
uh, maybe in the rotation where that like money is maybe uh, better spent for the team building situation. We're talking to Kylie McDaniel for another couple of minutes here on 101 ESPN. You could read his work over at ESPN.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at Kylie MCD. Kylie, one guy I wanted to ask you about was Alex Reyes because he had an unbelievable start to the year this year, was a legitimate all-star closer for the Cardinals, and then down the stretch, she faded. And I don't know if that was because it's the first year that he's had in the big leagues where he's had a full season in like five years. I don't know if it's because it just wasn't working for him and he was getting away with things at the beginning of the season where he was walking a bunch of batters and then he didn't get away with that down the stretch. I'm not sure what the actual cause was. But there's going to be some decisions on him going into next year. Do you go with him in the bullpen or the rotation? And maybe potentially the third route for him is, do you consider dealing him to another deal while he still has two years left on his contract? If they went that route, Kylie, what kind of value do you think Alex Reyes would have on the trade market for other teams? He's a tricky one because he hasn't had, I mean, if he's one of those relievers that breaks through and has like a Josh Hader, Devin Williams kind of season, those guys obviously have like tremendous value. And I think given the history of Alex Reyes, not quite finding the strike zone enough, being injured a lot, trying to find a role. If you have that kind of season, maybe you don't believe he's going to repeat it. Then you trade him for three, four young players, maybe like young players in the big leagues, like, you know, actual real value. He still hasn't quite done that yet. Like the peripherals point to more of like a setup man with a chance to become a closer in the realm of if there's 30 closers, you know, where does he settle? That kind of thing. And obviously is still on the young side is still affordable. Uh, I tend to think that, we, you know, with him, with Carlos Martinez, with, you know, uh, Jordan Hicks, like a lot of these, you know, fireballers that have all this upside, if you can still afford them and they're still pretty cheap, you just kind of throw them in the blender and see what comes out. And this year it was, you know, pretty good results for Alex Reyes. Uh, but the odds of all three of them coming out and being really good are pretty low. Uh, and so as long as they're affordable with Reyes, is, I think you hang on them and see what happens and maybe puts up that Josh Hader, you know, type season or, you know, one of those top 30 relievers in baseball type seasons and you've got a real find. And then you've got a good problem of what do we do with this? Like now it's starting to get a little more expensive. Like how do we want to move our pieces around in the team? But I don't think he's broken through to that level where if you deal him, you're getting tremendous value back. You're probably, you know, getting a pretty good prospect that is, you know, like a fringe everyday, you know, uh, every fringe everyday player in the lineup that's maybe in double A that could contribute. But would you rather have that or a chance to have a late inning reliever? I think that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Uh, And I think the Cardinals maybe need to move some of that capital toward the pitching staff to create enough depth. Uh, to make sure you don't run out of guys next year. Whereas I think, as I mentioned before, in the position player pool, if you sort of toss Gorman into what's there, you kind of have enough depth. You're just trying to find enough high-end guys, uh, which I think is sort of the issue uh, in that area. So, Kylie, shortstop is where every, every Cardinals fan is looking at this offseason and says has to be upgraded, whether they like Edmundo Sosa or not with the names that are available. But that next position, where do you think it is that the Cardinals have to look to upgrade this offseason? That's a tough one because uh, there's a lot of spots where, uh, you know, obviously like O'Neill came through, had a really big season. Do you think he's going to repeat that? It, maybe not to that level, but is he going to be bad enough that you then need to, you know, get another player as cover for him? Uh, I think Harrison Bader has had, you know, some trouble staying healthy. Do you want to get some depth at center field? And then again, if you have the, you know, uh, the universal DH coming through, then it's like, well, then do you just want to get a big bopper at any cost? These guys are pretty cheap these days. You might get, you know, one year deal for six, seven million and just get another power bat in there, you know, hearkening back to the Matt Adams days, we just have like, too many guys hitting for power. Uh, so the, the problem is whatever the issue in the lineup is going to be, if you just kind of roll with who you have uh, at the next trade deadline, you don't know what it's going to be because it's probably some guy you're not worrying about is going to be injured. And it turns out the backup isn't that good. And so you need another guy and you don't know who that is. 
So again, taking going back to what the you know not that the Padres are an example, but they kind of needed one more position player, and they looked at Profar and Kim and said, "Oh, these guys both can play essentially every position on the field. That's the guy you want because that'll cover whatever problem happens." Now it turns out both of them couldn't really hit, uh, so they didn't solve the kind problem. But I think that's the kind of thinking you should be going down that road of the multi-positional guy that maybe you think he's going to get 350 plate appearances, but then by the end of the year, he ends up getting 550 because something you don't see happening is going to happen. He's Kylie McDaniel. Find his work over at ESPN.com. Always appreciate him joining us via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line exclusively for him. Kylie, thanks so much for hopping on with us today, man. All the best. And we'll talk with you again soon. Thanks for keeping me a celebrity. Absolutely. That's Kylie McDaniel here on 101 ESPN. Man, the more I hear, whether it be from Kylie McDaniel, baseball insiders that we've talked to otherwise, or um, kind of reading between uh, the tea leaves of what the the Cardinals have said publicly, I think this team's going to go depth on the position player side, and they're going to look for more pitching. I I, I don't know that they're going to end up doing the the shortstop thing, the dance with these top-end free agents the way that we expected them to. I'm starting to I'm starting to uh, lose some of my confidence in that. I think that's a mistake if that's the route that they go, because then I think you're sticking with Edmundo Sosa and Paul DeYoung and then going to get somebody else and hoping Nolan Gorman cashes in. It, it seems like you're going with a lot of hope for the upcoming season, whereas, in my opinion, the one thing that was exploited in the postseason was the fact that you couldn't come up with that big time hit. And I don't think adding depth is going to come away with it. I think you're looking for one more big bat that's there for every three appearances or four appearances in the game. Six, five, seven, eight, Oh, is the air comfort service tax line. I've got a question for Alex. We'll get some of yours as well. Coming up next questions and answers here on one Oh one ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to six, five, seven, eight, Oh, it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on one Oh one. ESPN. Coming up in about five minutes or so, we're talking to Mike Florio, founder of Pro Football Talk. He wrote the other day that maybe the NFL would consider giving St. Louis an expansion team as part of the settlement in this lawsuit. Want to ask him about that. We'll do that coming up here in just about five minutes or so. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for some quick questions and answers today from the 314. Hey guys, since BK is in the mood today to admit that he's wrong about a bunch of things, I want to know if BK is finally ready to admit that Lamar Jackson is better than he thought that he was and that the Ravens are a legitimate threat in the AFC. Yeah, man, last night was a huge game for Lamar. Yeah, BK's admitting, and I really need to admit it because I've been poo-pooing on him as well. Lamar Jackson has had a tremendous season. He's in the MVP conversation and should be in the MVP conversation. And what he's been doing late in games, specifically against the Chiefs and then last night against the Colts, that's as impressive as you'll see. And I didn't know that he had that in him. So, yeah, absolutely. Full credit to the Ravens. Kudos to Lamar Jackson. They looked dead for three quarters. And then in the fourth quarter, they turned it on. That was enough. That was all they needed. Next week is going to be an awesome game between the Ravens and the Chargers. I can't wait to watch it. I think the Chargers are better. But seeing those two quarterbacks going head to head, I'm here for it, man. Yeah, I was a little surprised that the Colts just like stopped figuring out how to stop them because I mean, like you said the first half Ravens looked like they weren't even going to get 10 points like they just couldn't get anything going and then all of a sudden man the, the Colts just dropped off but man you got to give Lamar Jackson the credit because he found ways to exploit that pocket that was coming in on him and and, and still find his weapons and I mean heck he's made Marquise Brown look great Mark Andrews look awesome so 
I guess it's start. It's time for me to stop talking bad about Lamar Jackson because he's legit number one quarterback. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line from the six three six. Guys, would you be okay with filling that next big bat with a combination of guys like Kyle Schwarber or Jock Peterson, and then maybe adding a right-handed bat to the bench as well, as opposed to acquiring a shortstop via free agency and then maybe trading for a shortstop this offseason? So, would you be okay with adding a bat? with Schwarber, Peterson, somebody like that, and then maybe trading for a shortstop this offseason. Yeah, I mean, that would be fantastic. Now, who am I trading for? That's the question. Part. Because I'm not making a trade unless I'm getting somebody that's better than Edmundo Sosa and Tommy Edmund, because that's going to be the one-two punch that you're going to be going with. If you're going to sign a DH, though, you're pretty much admitting the fact that Nolan Gorman's not going to be up here at a full-time basis this season, because where, where's he going to play? You're not playing him at second base. Tommy Edmonds playing second base. Unless you're trading Tommy Edmonds, I don't think you're going to do that with a guy who just had 40 doubles. So I'd be fine with it, but I'd have to know more about what that trade looks like. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. I'm fine with that. And you could trade for maybe a position of strength like the bullpen or something like that if you get a shortstop, but he has to be better than Sosa. So yeah, I'm with you. It's so hard to find the shortstop to trade for, too. Like if they're making a trade this offseason for an improvement offensively, it's probably coming at second base. I think that's the likelier option. And if you do that, you're probably just resigned to the fact that Nolan Gorman's going to be a DH the first couple of years in, in the big leagues. And that's fine. I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And his future position honestly might be first yeah. after Goldie ends up either leaving or retiring or whatever that is. But that that might be the route that you have to take there. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Come Speaking of Nolan Gorman, I want to have a conversation about him because I think there is a real argument to be made. He's the key to the Cardinals offseason. We'll talk about that in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, Mike Florio said that it makes sense for the NFL to potentially offer St. Louis an expansion team in the settlement with the city. We'll ask him about that and how realistic it might be. Coming up next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture. The real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario, he's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. Always happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line to be joined by Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. You can follow him on Twitter at Pro Football Talk. Mike, we always appreciate the time, man. How you doing today? Doing great. How are you? Doing all right. Thanks so much for taking a little bit of time. I know you are a busy man this time of year. I wanted to start out asking about the news from last night with John Gruden officially uh, stepping down, resigning, being fired, however you want to phrase this. Do you is it your opinion that John Gruden would have continued to remain the head coach of the Raiders if we hadn't seen more of these emails released to the public? Well, probably, but here's the thing. They knew about the emails. Gruden knew about the emails. The Raiders knew about the emails, and I think what happened was the NFL fired one shot and hoped that Gruden would realize that there were plenty more bullets to come, and he didn't. And in hindsight, his best move would have been to walk away after Friday's email came out, especially since the Raiders had received other materials and presumably what was leaked to the New York Times yesterday, presumably by the league, was some of those other materials. And Gruden should have realized that once those other materials came out, it would have been impossible to remain on the job. So he should have walked away. So I guess the hypothetical presumes facts that don't mesh with what we know, because you know what? If he would have walked away based on one, uh, we never would have found out about these other 
email messages. Do you think that we're going to find out more now that we have seen these other emails and you'd have to imagine there's more stuff like this, whether it be Gruden or other people that have become intertwined with the Washington football team investigation? Do you think that stuff's going to be released or is the NFL going to keep that behind closed doors now? Well, I've got two things to say about that. First of all, if John Gruden or his agent slash lawyer were a smart and thinking and planning and strategizing, they would have, before Gruden ever resigned, gotten a commitment from the league that no further Gruden emails will ever see the light of day. Because I believe the NFL was motivated to keep leaking those emails until he quit or was fired. And once he quits or is fired, there's really no reason to continue to leak the emails. So they should have agreed that we'll see no more of it. However, and I need to go back to July 1. July 1, late afternoon, is when the NFL announced the outcome of a longstanding investigation into the Washington football team. Allegations, reality of workplace misconduct, over 100 people interviewed, 650,000 emails, as we now know. And what happened was the punishment was announced, but there was zero transparency. There was no report from the lawyer. The lawyer wasn't even asked to prepare a written report, and that's unheard of. I practiced law for 18 years. If a lawyer is hired to do a report on a workplace misconduct issue, the lawyer needs to and wants to prepare a report so that everything is clear. What was found, it's there. It can be recreated if it ever needs to be in the future. And the the only reason that a written report wasn't created, in my view, was they didn't want it to be ever released, because I think if we saw the things that Dan Snyder was either accused of doing or admitted to doing, He'd have had to sell the team. And it wasn't about protecting Snyder, I think, as much as it was protecting other owners for a similar fate at some point in the future, if they're ever alleged to have done something they shouldn't have done, and if there's an investigation that happens because of it. So the bottom line is, they buried all of this stuff, like nuclear waste, 300 feet underground, under layers of steel and concrete. And it stayed there for three months until they decided that they wanted to reach down in there and peel off a few pages and take down John Gruden. That, to me, is what is so sinister and bizarre and compelling about this. And this isn't a defense of John Gruden. You know, you could look at this and say, well, I guess John Gruden's the only guy that ever did this. Or you could look at it and say, well, I guess they all do it. Well, you know what? We got 650,000 pages that would help people piece together what did or didn't happen, who did or didn't say things like this in communications with Bruce Allen. And my understanding is there's a lot of nervous people around the league because it's not like Bruce Allen only had two or three friends. So I think that everything should be released or all of Bruce Allen's emails should be released or, worst-case scenario, Daniel Snyder and Bruce Allen, their communications should be released. Well, Mike, speaking of uh, revealing pages, I mean, this Rams relocation case feels like it's got an encyclopedia filled with documents that are going against the NFL. And now it's led us to your phenomenal reporting of St. Louis possibly getting an expansion team with this case. Uh, what, What news or anything new has come up from this in the last couple of days for you? Well, nothing, because frankly, let's think about when I reported this. It was Saturday. What happened Sunday? About, what, 14 games? Sounds about right. And then the Gruden aftermath. So it's funny. I got so many people emailing me, just fans, viewers, readers. What's the latest on the St. Louis lawsuit? Well, I don't know. There isn't anything. I haven't seen anything. And all I know is that while I was talking to people who know things about all sorts of things in the NFL, the conversation pivoted to the Rams relocation lawsuit. And, And I know I've 
spitballed about the possibility of an expansion team being the basis for a settlement because that's what happened in Cleveland. When Art Modell was trying to move the Browns to Baltimore and make them the Baltimore Browns, and the people in Cleveland didn't like it, and they started to rattle the the litigation saber, which if you've got legal rights that, that you can advance, so be it. The settlement was, before we even saw a lawsuit, the settlement was that the Browns' name stays behind and Cleveland will have an expansion team by 1999, period. So now that St. Louis has the NFL on the run, and the metaphor I've used is they've got the tiger by the tail and they're pulling as hard as they can, the bottom line is anything is on the table. Everything is on the table. And people have asked me, well, what would it mean? What would the expansion fee be? Who would, play, who would pay for the stadium? This, it's, all, it's all negotiable. It's all subject to negotiation. And it's all driven by the leverage that the St. Louis plaintiffs have developed so far in this case. And they have a ton of leverage. They have a multi-billion dollar corporation or, I mean, technically it's not a corporation, but you, you get the point. Yeah. A multi-billion dollar business concern, they have them in a spot that they rarely are in, and they don't know what to do. And one way out of this, and, and it's not happening anytime soon, but at, at some point, the right way out of this may be to say, you know what, we'll give you a team by 2032 or pick a year. And then you continue the negotiation from there as to who pays for the stadium, who pays for the expansion fee, who the owners would be. And it's all part of negotiation. It's interesting, Mike. We're talking with Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk. So I guess kind of the follow-up question for anybody here in St. Louis that hasn't been paying attention to this lawsuit, and there aren't many of those people, but if there are any that are listening, why would the, why does the league feel like it is so important to avoid actually going to trial with this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, when you start putting owners on the witness stand, they're not going to be good witnesses. And I know from when I practice law, you talk about executives, people who run businesses, people who are not used to submitting to any authority other than their own. They are not good witnesses. The best example I can give you is the film A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. And when Colonel Nathan Jessup gets put on the stand and is browbeaten repeatedly by Tom Cruise, he doesn't appreciate it. He doesn't want to have some snot-nosed punk asking him a bunch of questions. And most of these owners highly accomplished business people. They look down their noses at lawyers because lawyers get in the way of the things they want to do. They regard lawyers the way that Michael Scott regarded Toby, the HR guy in the office. They hate them. They hate them. Remember in 2011 during the lockout, Robert Kraft wanted the lawyers out of the room. So you've got Robert Kraft, you've got Jerry Jones, you've got Stan Kroenke. You're going to have a parade like the Seinfeld finale of witnesses who are asked aggressive questions they're not going to be properly prepared because the mere act of preparing them to handle those hostile questions may get people fired. You want to avoid that if you can, if you're the NFL. And, and then on top of that, the jury hears all that, and that arrogance kind of seeps through collectively. Or a guy like Jerry Jones, who will talk in circles and eventually admit to everything without realizing it, <laughs> that gives up the, the goat as well, and uh, you end up with a huge damages award. So... Yeah, if you're the NFL, you want to try to avoid a trial. The problem is, if they come to the table now, and I know what I would do. I practice on both sides of the civil ledger as a defense lawyer and as a plaintiff's lawyer. And, you know, there's always a history of the litigation that is a factor when it's time to settle. And my guess is 
the NFL's lawyers were very dismissive, condescending, and arrogant early on in the case. And now that the worm has turned and they're going to come creeping to the table to look for the plaintiff's lawyers to be reasonable, well, they're not going to be inclined to do it. And if the plaintiff's lawyers are skilled, and by virtue of the fact that they have the NFL where they currently have them, they must be, they're not going to fall for it. They're going to keep pushing. And the leverage is there. So if the NFL has finally emerged from its coma on this and is ready to try to settle, well, whatever it would have taken to settle it three years ago, it's going to be a lot more than that now. And I think that there are people in the NFL power structure who are dismayed by the fact that the lawyers didn't sound the alarm sooner. The alarm sounded when the ruling came down that multiple owners are required to produce financial information because enough evidence has been produced to show that there's a possible punitive damages award. That's what woke the NFL up. And it may be too late to get the kind of settlement that they think they could have gotten at some point in the past. So, uh, you know, this thing's going toward trial unless there's a settlement that the NFL is willing to enter into. But at this point, you've got to get the plaintiff's lawyers willing to take less than whatever it is that they're looking for, and they should be looking for a lot. Uh, Mike, final one from me. Is this the best outcome for the city of St. Louis in getting an expansion team, or do you think something else could be gotten if this went deeper into trial? Um, I, I, think, I think that the best way to get the expansion team, frankly, is to, um, is to take this thing to a, a judgment, take it to a verdict, get a gigantic verdict, and hope that what ultimately happens is Stan Kroenke tries to back away from his commitment to indemnify his partners. And look, the NFL's lawyers would say that the indemnity arrangement where Kroenke is going to pay for everything, the verdict, the legal fees, everything, that it's ironclad. But, you know, if it's $1.5 billion and Stan Kroenke's got to write a check for that, he's got to come up with that kind of cash, he may tell his lawyers to try to find loopholes. And if there are some successful loopholes, that may be when the leverage kicks in to get the commissioner to say, look, let's just give these people a team and be done with it. So it's down the road, and I don't think it's anything that's going to be offered until the NFL sees the worst-case scenario play out, which would be losing at trial and having a massive award of damages that would cause dissension among the owners. Final question for me. We'll get you out of here on this one, Mike, and thanks so much for being so generous with your time today. If you were the the St. Louis side in this case, is that the best case scenario, or would you be more interested in the money side of things? Well, here's here's the problem. And, And I don't know anything about the financial arrangement that the lawyers have entered into with the St. Louis organizations. But usually what happens in a case like this, the lawyer takes it on a contingency. And it's very easy to figure out what the lawyer gets paid when you're taking 33% of a, a pile of money. Yeah. It becomes more difficult when the settlement is you're going to get a football team. And that's part of what would have to be negotiated. What's the lawyer's fee? What payment will be made to the lawyers as part of this? And again, I don't know anything about that relationship, but it's a lot easier to negotiate dollars and cents than it is to negotiate specific things because the lawyer can't take well, maybe the lawyer would like to have 33% of the team, but it probably wouldn't work that way. So uh, that, that's what would that potentially complicate things. But uh, if I'm St. Louis, I, I think I'd rather have the team, right? 
mean, you're going to get the money, and you know, you, you, you get, you know, you, I don't know what you can do with the money, but you get a team. You got, you got an NFL team again. You need a commitment that you have the team for fifty, seventy-five, a hundred years. It's all subject to negotiation, but I, I, I think it would make sense, and it would be the closest thing to making yourself whole if, as a result of this litigation you end up getting yourself a brand-new football team. Is there anything I didn't ask you about uh, or Alex didn't ask you about that you think St. Louis needs to know about where we're at with this? If if there is, my brain at this current point <laughs> is incapable of processing it, thanks to John Gruden and everything that's gone on the last 18 hours. Well, Mike, thanks so much for hopping on with us. I know this is a crazy busy time for you. All the best. We'll talk with you again soon, man. All right, see you. You got it. That's Mike Florio, founder of Pro Football Talk, joining us here on 101 ESPN. He's one of the best in the business for a reason. Um, and when it comes to stuff like this, in my opinion, he's literally the best in the business. He's the one that wrote about, hey, people in league cir- circles are wondering, is is it potentially going to take an expansion team to settle this thing? And man, after talking to him, I don't know how you feel about this. I want to open up the text line. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll talk about this on the other side. We'll keep this going here. It seems to me like that's kind of the best case scenario here is you end up going to trial. You get that big verdict that he was talking about there. Stan Kroenke balks at the number and then the NFL comes to the table and says, oh, boy, uh, we got to we got to come up with something else like this is not going to work for us. And because the 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 city has so much leverage at that point, they've already been awarded such a massive potential financial uh, win now the NFL has to go to, okay, there's only one other option here. And the last case, last resort for them, we got to give them an expansion team and give them basically everything they want when it comes to that expansion team. What would you think of that? 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. If you missed our conversation with Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, I highly recommend checking that out on the podcast page. 101ESPN.com, the free 101 ESPN app is where you find it. You can find all of his work over at ProFootballTalk.com. It's 1225, your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Alex, I thought there was a lot that was enlightening about our conversation with Mike Florio, most notably this. He basically said, hey, this is not something that's going to get settled anytime in the near future. This is potentially going to go to trial and it may even get settled after trial is concluded if St. Louis is awarded a large sum of money. It's also a situation where, yeah, an expansion team might be something that is legitimately brought up by the league because of how much leverage the city of St. Louis has over them right now. And then he, without us even having to ask him about it, he said, Hey, I'm getting a lot of questions from people in St. Louis and otherwise who are wondering, well, what would the logistics be of this? Who would be the owner? Who would pay for the re, uh, the expansion fee? Uh, who would pay for the stadium? All of these different things. And he said, well, we mentioned yesterday, all of that can be negotiated. All of it. All of it is up to the, the, the negotiation prior to any sort of settlement like that. So that's where we're at right now. There's not a whole lot more that's probably going to be able to be added until we get closer towards the trial. But after talking with Mike Florio, Alex, where do you stand on the settlement possibility, what you want out of that settlement and where, 
where you think the city would be on the uh, on St. Louis potentially accepting an expansion team from the NFL? Yeah, that's really hard because I, I think you if you were to ask everybody in the city of St. Louis, it'd be split down the middle where you'd have half saying, no, I, you know, screw the NFL. We don't want them back here. Give us the money. And then the other half is saying, well, you give us the money and they're going to put it to bad use. So give us a team where we know what it's going towards. So for me personally, hearing him say that the best case scenario in this lawsuit for the city of St. Louis is going to be a, a, a football team. And, and I do tend to agree with his view there because once you get into the 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 nitty gritty of a large sum of money and trying to divvy that out of paying lawyers and paying all of the fees that go into it and then deciding where you're going to go with that money, that's where things get really nasty. But if you're just awarded a NFL team that is for the city of St. Louis, owned by the city of St. Louis, and is only going to benefit the city of St. Louis because essentially you're getting the same thing. The money coming from the team, sure, the NFL is going to get a lot of that money, but the city's going to get a lot of that money as well. So hearing him say at the end of it, the best outcome for the city of St. Louis would be a expansion team. When you asked me that question yesterday, I hesitated. I don't think I hesitate anymore. I think that would be the best case scenario for this lawsuit is getting that large sum of money that you want, but in the form of an expansion team that could be here for 50 to 100 years. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. I love this text from the 636. Guys, I'm 26 years old, born and raised in St. Louis, love my city, and I'm beyond proud to be from here. So I've always wanted a pound of flesh from the NFL and nothing else. But now after taking a lot of thinking and hearing that interview with Mike Florio, I think getting an expansion team is what's best for the city long term. And really, that's what I care about. That's where I'm at. I think that the asset of having a team here in St. Louis is what matters. Now, there are contingencies on that. You would need to get assurances that the team is not moving. You would need to get assurances that the owner is going to be somebody that the city of St. Louis can trust. And I'm not talking like Stan Kroenke trust. I'm talking like the ownership group that is being that that was put together for the soccer team here in St. Louis appears to know what they're doing. And they are communicating things with the city and doing outreach with the city in a way that is meaningful and that matters. Same with Tom Stillman and the Blues. Absolutely. Similar to what the Battle Hawks were, right? The Battle Hawks were a grassroots organization. If the NFL comes back to St. Louis with an expansion team, it's going to be it's going to have to be that style in terms of the ownership and the way that they are able to connect with St. Louis. So, it, it's going to take a lot. But I do think that is the best case scenario for where we're at right now. We also got this one from a three, one, four in a perfect settlement. I want the NFL expansion franchise. I want the NFL to build the new stadium. I want them to find an owner and to guarantee the franchise will be here throughout my lifetime. I think those are kind of the, those are the types of things that the city would probably be looking for. Yeah. I think, I think you look in, in a lawsuit, everything can be negotiated. Yeah. And I mean, everything can be negotiated. So the the negotiations are going to continue past an expansion team. Like the NFL is going to come to the St. Louis lawyers and say, okay, we'll give you a team. Lawyers are going to say, okay, we ain't stopping there because we need like a 30-year agreement that this team is going nowhere while in St. Louis. On top of it, you're building us a pretty high at the a state-of-the-art stadium for the fan base in St. Louis, wherever we deem you're going to put it like there, there's going to be a list of stipulations on all of this when it comes down to it. And 
that, that's the only way I think you're going to benefit from this one because at the end of the day, for a lot of fans that were so upset when it was taken away and then this this lawsuit, like I don't think those fans are just going to be happy if the NFL says, nah, yeah, we messed up and here's the money. Okay, we got it from you, but then what? Like I think you wouldn't, the fans it would seem would want a stadium to where they can kind of rub it in the face of the NFL of like, hey, you lost and we have evidence of you losing. It's our team. Man, that's such a great point. It really is. And, and it goes along with this text that I, that we just got from the 636. Guys, do you honestly think the NFL wants anything to do with St. Louis? The commissioner and the owners all voted against our city having a team. They can go screw themselves. I get the sentiment. I really do. Can you imagine a better middle finger to the NFL than St. Louis getting an expansion team, having it guaranteed to be here for, let's say, the next 50 years, the team coming in and having success immediately, and St. Louis selling out wherever that that stadium ends up being, riverfront, let's say, for the entire entirety of its existence, basically. Like, that's the middle finger to the NFL. Mm-hmm. We got this because you guys are a bunch of dumb bleeps. Like that that's on you and we didn't have to pay for it. It was funded by you for us. And now we get to take advantage of it for the next 50 years by selling this thing out and having something that I get to go to with my kids. Alex gets to go to with his kids and you get to go to with your kids and you can pass down this team for generations to come. That is the middle finger to the league. The billions of dollars, man, that hurts them. Don't get me wrong, but this hurts them way worse. This is a reminder every time that they go into any league meetings of, oh, God. Oh, boy. Uh, Kendall Betts is here. She She's here again, and she she's an owner because we screwed up. Like, that that is what will do it. So, for me... I, I think even more so than ever before, I am convinced that the best possible outcome for St. Louis and the worst possible outcome, frankly, for the NFL is this city getting a new stadium and a new team that they have to fund. All right. I'm, I'm playing all these scenarios in my head right now, and I'm just having way too much fun with this. Can you imagine like the opening press conference from the commissioner, Robert Roger Goodell, uh, of they unveiling the new NFL team in St. Louis and him just giving that speech? Yeah, because I mean, that would be a catastrophe. Be it would be a, great. But then I got an even better one. Like, I, I, I think Stan Kroenke would have to be the one that, like, announces the first draft pick from St. Louis. He's not talking, but I think that has to go into the stipulation. Again, in a legal lawsuit, anything is negotiable. Every time St. Louis has something, I think Stan Kroenke would have to sit there and have to announce it. Yeah, I mean, it. if, if this were to happen... The biggest contingencies would have to be placed on the team, the ownership, and them staying here. And then (laughs) you'd have to figure out what to do in terms of the financing of um, the stadium and the practice facilities and all of that. All of that would have to be negotiated. Hey, we got one, guys. BK and Ferrario's kids will see a football game in St. Louis before Tanner gets a date. (laughs) Wrong. Is it? Are we sure? Is it wrong? <laughs> um, somebody else said from the 618, BK, the only way that any of this works is if zero of the revenue actually goes to the league. They're all about the Benjamins and nothing else. It's going to go to the league. Do you know how much money the league is losing out on yeah. by giving an expansion team to St. Louis as opposed to having somebody else pay those expansion fees? It, that's that's where I was going to go with that. Like, because taking into consideration, like what the what the NHL just did with Vegas and Seattle – they paid five hundred and seven hundred and fifty million dollars for an expansion team. The St. Louis doesn't have to pay that. 
So essentially, if you win $300 million or something in a lawsuit, like which I know this is like in the billions conversation right now. The Texans paid $700 million to be an expansion team in 2005. Yeah. So you're talking. That was more than 15 years ago. You're talking close to a couple billion dollars now for an expansion team. I mean, it's probably like $1.5 billion, something I can't even imagine. I don't know what the exact number is, but let's call it that. They're handing you a $1.5 billion asset in terms of the expansion fee. And oh, by the way, the team itself is worth probably an extra billion dollars as well. So, yeah, that's going to hurt the league. And you're not lining their pockets with money. If they were to expand to two new teams and they didn't have to give one to St. Louis, they're getting all of that cash. So um, they're going to get the money from all of the TV revenues and all of that stuff. You just got to live with that. But St. Louis is also getting a hell of a lot of revenue out of this. Some of the whatever, wherever the stadium would be, those restaurants, the small businesses, the shops that are able to go up around there. Man, all of that stuff is coming right back here to St. Louis, and that's what matters. That's the one thing that would sting if the St. Louis was given an expansion team from this, because Mike Florio had it in his article that you know the NFL would have to expand its its league into another team on top of St. Louis to make it an even number, and they're going to make money off of that. So yeah. St. Louis's expansion is essentially benefiting the NFL, which would sting a little bit. But again, I go back to the point of you having a team that is basically rubbing it in the NFL's face for 17 plus weeks in a season where it's like, Hey, you guys lost. And here's the evidence of you losing with that. I found the, th- the quote we have to have Kroenke read off right before he reads off the first pick. I'm stupid. You're smart. Yep. I was wrong. You were right. You're the best. I'm the worst. You're very good looking. Yeah. I'm not attractive. And with the first overall pick, <laughs> also, <laughs> it says the new team name would have to be the St. Louis River Monsters. Hashtag fear the deep. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But coming up next, Nolan Gorman might be the key to the Cardinals offseason. And I'll tell you why coming up on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. You have guys like Gorman coming up who has, you know, been a prospect that's always been fried for that, the top position, or the top position playing prospect in the organization. I don't really see what's the point in having prospects if you're not going to promote them at any time soon. And he had, you know, a great year across two levels in the minor leagues. And he has is interesting, too. You know, obviously they thought highly enough of him to put him on the playoff roster where he would potentially make his major league debut in the highest setting. And he's also a 40, or a Rule 5 guy, so he needs to be on the 40-man roster. So... I think if they're going to an order of importance, again, if they're looking for the shortstop market and looking to potentially add for starting pitching, it would make sense to find a bench bat or hopefully find one in their minor league system. That was Katie Wu with us yesterday talking about what the Cardinals uh, need this offseason. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. I think Nolan, Nolan Gorman, for me, is the key to the Cardinals offseason. And that may sound strange, given that he's never played a game in the big leagues. He spent less than half of the season season down in triple a but alex he is everything that the cardinals are missing right now in a lot of ways he's a big bat that could potentially fill in a spot in the middle of your order he could play dh he could play second base for you and he's a left-handed hitter and as we're looking at what the cardinals need offensively going into next season that's kind of it they need a middle infielder who's a left-handed hitter that can hit for some pop in the middle of their order 
Well, if Nolan Gorman's ready to do all of those things for the big league club early on next season, there's really no need to spend 25 plus million dollars per year on a guy like Corey Seager or to go out there and acquire Kyle Schwarber, who's coming off of a really good season. Um, you don't need necessarily J.D. Martinez, who, you know, I know you think is 45 years old, even though he's only like 34. Oh, he's actually 43, but it's fine. Nolan Gorman fits all of the things that we've been talking about. But it all comes down to what is the organization's assessment of his readiness right now? Does he need more time down in AAA or is he ready to go? And Alex, if he's ready, I think it makes a lot more sense for them to kind of spread this money around pitching staff wise, depth wise, and start looking at other options as opposed to just that middle of the order middle infielder. Yeah, the the only problem, though, is he's not the position you need in the middle infield. Like you need a shortstop. And maybe we're fine with Tommy Edmond slash Edmundo Sosa as your shortstop and Nolan Gorman as your everyday second baseman. But you're also playing the hope game. You're playing the game of we hope Nolan Gorman is ready for this level, right? Because he destroyed hitting in double A and triple A. We hope he's ready to turn the turn or turn the table and become a major league everyday player. If he is, then yeah, that addresses all of those needs that you're worried about. And you can do what Kylie McDaniel told us and spread the wealth kind of like what the Red Sox just did. The only issue is you, you can't go about knowing that this season. Now, maybe he goes to the Arizona fall league and tears it up and you sit there and go, you know what? This guy's ready for a shot. But if you do that, you're taking the sh- the chance of, it not working out, him looking overwhelmed at this level, and then having to wait until the trade deadline for you to acquire a piece to fill the hole that wasn't filled via free agency. I, I think that the, the Cardinals, it almost feels like they view him kind of how they did with Dylan Carlson. Am I kind of viewing that wrong? Where is they basically feel like he's probably major league ready, and they didn't. There was no okay. We're just gonna we're gonna kind of have that backup for Carlson in case it doesn't go well. Because after, I guess, 2020, maybe there was kind of that with Dexter Fowler, but they basically gave Dylan Carlson the starting job the moment he got called up, and then they dealt away Fowler to really make sure he had it for 2021. I feel like if you think he's ready, that's basically your approach. There's no need to go out and get a guy that's going to back him up. You put him in, whether it be at second base or DH. In my opinion, you'd probably lock him in, pencil him in as your DH, and then that that figures out kind of what you're going with the offseason, and then maybe then you look to do kind of that – depth depth kind of moves but instead of spending all on like a shortstop like Corey seager six five seven eight oh is the air comfort service text line from the six three six guys there's no way to see if gorman can succeed until after you sign an offseason bat i i don't really understand that like if you're betting on gorman as a talent what you're doing is saying hey in his final 65 games of triple a last year he hit 300 and if i had any questions about gorman it was this is he going to be able to be a contact guy? Is he going to make enough contacts to succeed at the big league level? Man, he cut down his strikeout rate at a huge degree this year. He struck out about 25% of the time at AAA. Now, that might creep up. He might get closer to 30, maybe even a little bit above at the big league level. But he did so still remaining his power. He was on pace for 34 home runs over a 162-game season with his AAA numbers. He slugged 500. Nolan Gorman was awesome in AAA last year, if they believe that he is ready, then they should do what Tanner's talking about. They should lay out the red carpet and allow him to fail at the big league level. It may come with some learning curve. It may have uh, some issues that they didn't anticipate. It might even come with them having to send him back down at some point next year. But he should be the guy that is expected to be a significant contributor. And I do think that changes their offseason plan. 
I don't think at that point you would need to go out there and get the DH. Maybe you still look at Corey Seager. Maybe it makes it even more likely that you can afford a guy like Corey Seager because now you've got a cheaper designated hitter. Gorman's going to cost you $500,000 next year as opposed to Schwarber, who might be 15. J.D. Martinez, who's probably closer to 20. So it frees up some cash there. They're guys that are on the cusp of making the big league club. That's going to be the first decisions that the Cardinals have to make a decision, have to figure out this offseason. Liberator, Gorman, Juan Yepes, can he be a bench bat for this team next year early on in the season? Those are all things they need to find out because if if they think all of those guys are going to contribute immediately, well, then maybe instead of going out there and signing bigger names or more expensive deals, Maybe they are signing the veteran minimum types of guys like Jose Rondon or going out there and acquiring maybe it is Jock Peterson on a two to three million dollar deal. That might be the route that they decide to go instead and focus most of their money onto the pitching staff. To me, Nolan Gorman is an asset or he's a complimentary piece. He's not the answer Uh, because I think if you're trying to take that next step towards contending next season, you cannot rely on a 21, 22 year old who's had 300 at bats at AAA and say, you're the answer to our offensive woes this past season. I think you have to have an answer and him be a part of the solution. He needs to be the guy that you call up in May after a hot start and say, you know what? Our bench is just missing a little bit of a push. This guy's still tearing it up. You don't call Nolan Gorman up to be a bench bat. Like Nolan Gorman is one of the top prospects in the sport. His impact is going to be more similar to what Tanner's talking about with Dylan Carlson. Once he's up, man, he's I I don't know where it's going to be, but he's starting for you every day. He's got to be in that lineup every day for you. So if you go that route, he needs to be in the lineup. And this is why I'm curious what they decide to do around him. If you go sign J.D. Martinez, you're you're either displacing Tommy Edmond or the D.H. spot. And if you sign J.D. Martinez or Kyle Schwarber, whoever our pick du jour of the day is for that D.H. spot. Oh, I'll pick Cruz. Sure. You're displacing a 15 to 20 million dollar player. That's just not happening. They're not going to do that. It doesn't make any sense to do so. So you're basically saying Nolan Gorman is now our starter at second base over Tommy Edmond. Alex, I know you you really like Tommy Edmond at second base. So it, I, I think that's why you have to make the decision now as opposed to midway through next year. If you wait that long, you're basically punting on a year of Nolan Gorman on the big league roster. But you're also getting a full another season of him in AAA to get more opportunities because the 300 that he hit, that was in 67 games in AAA. Like 67 games in AAA is a lot, but I, I don't know. I, maybe I would prefer a full season in AAA before I can sit here and say he's an everyday player for us on this major league roster. And maybe I'm outlandish with this. Maybe I, maybe I'm looking too much into the old school baseball mentality of you got, or it might be the hockey mentality of you got to get some reps at the minor league level before you can just be thrusted into a major league opportunity. But if I'm looking at a team that got beat in a wild card game against the Dodgers. And I'm looking at Nolan Gorman and saying, okay, this is the solution to the problem. I still feel like there are other holes that need to be filled on offense before he's the solution. Do you guys know how many games Dylan Carlson spent at AAA? Oh, yeah, it was only like 14 or something like that. It wasn't very much because he didn't have AAA in 2020. 18. 18 games. But look at the struggles he had in 2020. Yeah, I mean, he, he went through a rough year, but it was also 35 games. 
I mean, that, that that is kind of the expected. But a lot of people were talking about Dylan Carlson struggling this season also at times. Not full season. I mean, he had a good year, but there were people, there were individuals who looked at it and said, man, Dylan Carlson looks but overwhelmed. I, I, I even said coming into the year, I thought that the, you would see kind of a roller coaster season from Carlson adjusting so, to a big league life. I, I, just, I think you should expect, if, and it'd be the same point, with Gorman. Alex, if Gorman comes up next year, I expect a similar kind of year to what we saw this year from Dylan Carlson. I would rather offset that, though, then, and get another season of Memphis and a little bit more seasoning underneath him before I'm going to go on that roller coaster ride. That season's coming for Gorman, whether it's next year or 2022, because there's no way to prepare for big league pitching unless you see big league pitching. But wouldn't you rather have that for a 21-year-old or 21, 22-year-old or 23-year-old? Like, I think that extra year might benefit him in terms of working in the minors, working at the highest level in the minors, where you are seeing big league level pitching down in AAA. Not. You're not. In I mean, some it, situations, you are. I mean, Detroit, not every day. There, there's not every no day. way that you're not seeing Max Scherzer ever. No, you're not seeing Max Scherzer, but you're still seeing guys who are on the track level with that. You're going yeah. up against other teams, Matthew Libator, and you're getting options against that. I mean, it. It's a fair retort, and the Cardinals very well may take that route because if they deem him to not be ready, that is the smart way to go. But hearing everything that the Cardinals say about Nolan Gorman, it sounds like mentally he's there. And it's just a matter of him being able to get to the big leagues and adjust to what he's seeing. It's going to take a while for him to become the hitter that he wants to be in the big leagues. But you have to do it before you can find out if he if he's there or not. So I, I look at some of the guys, whether it be... Dylan Carlson, or you look to some of the other top prospects in baseball. I, I know it's difficult to compare him, but Wander Franco, who is a stud right now for the Rays, his numbers aren't, they don't jump off the sheet to you if you if you just look at the sheer stats. But if you watch the games, man, he's been excellent for them this year. Um, he played like 30, 40 games at AAA this year. I, I think he's ready. And if Nolan Gorman is ready, I think he's the key. He's the pivot point this offseason for the Cardinals, in my mind. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford, our Blues insider. We'll dive into the junk drawer coming up next. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Jeremy Rutherford, the Blues insider for The Athletic, is joining us coming up here in about 5-10 minutes or so. But let's dive into the junk drawer. Guys, I've got maybe the worst thief in the world. A story about him for today, if you don't mind. Worst thief in the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. We've talked about some bad crime stories over the last few uh, months. Oh. Yeah, I've learned what not to do. Yep. Uh, Kevion Hooks would like to teach you a little something else right. that you should not do. Is that a fancy do. way of saying Kevin? Nope, Kevion. Tell me, Kevion. Kevion. Kevion is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Latin name does not match Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he was arrested for armed robbery. Well, this will be good. In which he took a prosthetic leg from a victim. What? According to the Tulsa Police Department, the victim stated that Tevion came up with a large metal spike, took the victim's backpack, and took the victim's prosthetic leg. Whoa. At the same time? Now, the real question is, did he push him over and take the leg, or did you, like, I mean, I guess you had to. You can't just he, take him off him while he's standing. Yeah, he had a large metal spike, so he was he was threatening him and took the leg. When Hooks was apprehended, how do you think they found the leg? He was wearing it. He was wearing it strapped to his head. Oh, wow. He had to have been drunk. Had he, to have been drunk. He takes the prosthetic leg and straps it to his head. 
and is taken to jail as a result. They did indeed take the leg off of his head oh, no. and gave it back to the victim. If you're thinking about stealing a prosthetic leg, maybe don't strap it to your head next time around, Kevion. Kevion. Just just a recommendation all for I'm, my friend Kevion Hooks. All I'm thinking is now the movie Guardians of the Galaxy, when he goes and steals the leg from him, he's like, I need the guy's prosthetic <laughs> leg. And he takes it from him and he's like, Why what did you need the leg for? He's like, I just wanted to see if you'd actually do it. He's like, that's horrible. He's like, Can you imagine him waking up and be like, Where's my leg? It's fantastic. I I'm not sure exactly what he thought he was going that's i think that's my biggest question here okay so you steal the backpack whatever i'm assuming it had money in it or something I, i'm not really sure what the goal was there but i'm really not sure the goal what the goal was with the leg best case scenario you get away with this those prosthetic legs are pretty expensive though like you could probably sell it on the black market you get an arm and a leg for it Come on, that was good. <laughs> Jeremy Rutherford next on 101 ESPN. Giving you the picture, the real big St. Louis sports picture. It's BK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line. We'll get into a big game of better to forget it coming up here in just about 10 minutes or so. But right now, happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by Blues Insider for 101 ESPN and The Athletic. He is Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. JR, what's going on, man? Not too much, boys. How you guys doing? Doing fantastic. So we are officially down to what the Blues roster will be to start out the 2021 season. What caught your attention? What was most interesting to you in terms of the decisions that were made, Jr.? Yeah, how about that? Finally there. Yeah, this is great. Uh, it, you know, uh, I, I was looking back at my lineup projection from about a week before uh, they finally uh, released the, the, the roster. And, you know, just a few things, you know, I really thought Dakota Joshua would make this team and listening to Craig Burby, he said that uh, that was a very, very tough decision. Um, you know, I did mention that uh, I thought Jake neighbors would make this team. I thought, in fact, maybe he'd play a role on a top line and perhaps he does, but it looks like uh, this weekend he's going to start out on that fourth line. Uh, and then James Neal, obviously a big story in camp you know he was competing and i think that he, he eventually he showed enough and i think he's a good addition to this team so you know those are some of the things early on scott brunovich you thought he might uh, have a chance to make this team but i thought jake wallman came on pretty strong lately and i and i feel like the blues looked at their defense as kind of being set and they wanted scott brunovich to get some some games in the minor league so all in all i think it's about what we thought it would look like with just a few exceptions jared the one that that still kind of confuses me is clem costin because i just don't see an established role for him because you know jake neighbors reportedly is starting the game on saturday against colorado on the fourth line you'll have kyle clifford as a healthy scratch and then there's clem costin i mean where do you see kind of his role with this team yeah, it's a good point, and it's a really good question, Alex. The so one thing I'll say, and I'm kind of kicking myself here, is you know, even though he didn't play uh, in the postseason last year when he got over here from Russia, you know, kind of the scuttlebutt around the team was that he was going to have a spot on this roster. Like they needed to see what Clint Costin could give them. And even though I don't think he showed enough in camp, look, he, he got beat out. He's not in the lineup this Saturday over a 19-year-old, Jake Neighbors. And so, you know, that kind of tells you, uh, that he didn't necessarily wow people in camp. 
But I think at some point, and, and this is where I think you look at the Quinn Costin situation, they have to have him here. And he's not going to be in the lineup right away. You know, maybe game three, maybe game four, we'll see. Uh, Craig Ruby said he is going to play. But at some point, you're just going to have to put him out there for a few games in a row and, and see what he does. So to me, if you send him to the minor leagues, which maybe you needed to do here with the camp that he had, you know, maybe he says, look, uh, this isn't working out for me. I'm going to go back to uh, Russia. So I think it's worth saying, hey, look, you're on the team. We're going to give you a chance. Let's see what you can do. We're talking to Jeremy Rutherford of The Athletic here on 101 ESPN. JR, earlier today we talked a little bit about James Neal and what he's going to bring. And I, I love the signing for a million different reasons. But the thing that stood out to me maybe most of late is the way that some of the players and then Craig Berube as well are talking about Neal's impact within the locker room. What have you made of what kind of an impact he can have, obviously on the ice, but we've talked a little bit about that. What kind of a guy he could potentially be for this team in the locker room? Well, it, I think that when you look at James Neal, he's been on a lot of teams. What is it, five in the last six or seven years? So he's definitely had to go into these locker rooms and acclimate himself and kind of be one of the guys. And I think he's he's obviously done that. It's really tough for us to have a good feel for what he means to the locker room just because we have not been in the locker room. Like Alex knows this, you know, pre-COVID, you could go in there and you could see the banter back and forth. You could see who's ripping on who and who's kind of the leader and who laughs and, you know, who's the ringleader with all this stuff. It's tough to see when we're not in the locker room. But just listening to every Blues player who's come on the Zoom interviews here in the past couple of weeks, they've mentioned the locker room and the impact he's had there. So I think you have your kind of straight-laced guys, if you want to call them that, you know, like a, a Ryan O'Reilly, uh, Braden Chen. And that's not to say that they don't have fun, but I think those are some of the, the serious guys. I think what this team has missed is, is kind of a, a fun guy. You know, Pat Maroon leaves, uh, you know, others the past couple of years. So I think James Neal, again, you know, being up front that I don't know specifically what kind of impact he's having. You got to believe that a guy who's been around and a guy who's kind of had a fun reputation over the years, his years in the league uh, is kind of bringing that to the blues locker room. Well, and the thing about James Neal too, JR is, and we talked about this on post game this past Friday. Um, it's the fact that he provides something that the blues just didn't have last year. And it was people who went to the front of the net. I, I told BK and T-bone yesterday, like we spent all of last year in that postseason series against Colorado, talking about how Colorado, those guys stood in front of Bennington and no blues players went in front of their goaltender. Can you see Neil making an impact, not just in his game in that direction, but also the other guys on the ice with him of like, Oh, Hey, Neil's doing this. Let's start doing this a little bit more. Yeah. A lot of times when you get a couple guys who do that, whether it's a, a Neil or a Buchnevich or a sod, it's kind of contagious, uh, but you definitely need a couple guys doing it. Uh, because as you mentioned last year in the playoffs, that was so glaring. My thing, and this isn't to sound like Mr. Skeptical, but let's continue to see that into November, December, January with James Neal. Not saying that he's just trying to put on a show for training camp, but he was trying to earn a job. But, but let's, let's think about it. You know, it, it's a difficult job to go to the front of the net, you know, for six, seven, eight months of the season. He's made the team. Is he willing to do that? You would think so. That's what we saw during training camp. If he wants to stay in the lineup, if he wants to stay on the roster, you know, when guys like Sunquist come back, you know, then he needs to keep that up. Um, but, you know, James Neal's moved around a lot, you know, and I've heard from different writers the past couple of weeks. You know, he's a guy who he doesn't 
show up every night necessarily, or, or maybe he's a guy who doesn't give it his all all the time. I think we've seen a really good glimpse of James Neal the past three or four weeks, and I just want to see a player who's been given this opportunity to take that and continue to provide what the Blues need. JR, you mentioned skepticism, and this is a time of year for excitement. Fans are very excited about this year's Blues, and they have every reason to be. This forward unit in particular looks like it's as deep as it's been in, in at least a couple of years now. If there's anything you're skeptical of, though, going into the year, what is it? And going into night one, what is the thing that you're going to be watching and being like, ah, I don't know about that. Let's see how this ends up going for them. Yeah, I think when you look at, uh, you know, players, units, groups, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on the defense. And, you know, I wouldn't label me looking at the defense as skepticism, uh, but I would say curiosity. Like, uh, I think you feel pretty good about the forward group and, and the depth. Look, when I did the scoring projections for every Blues player a couple of days ago, um, I didn't have a 30-goal scorer. I had a lot, what was it, six or seven 20-goal scorers. Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that's good for the team. I really do think that all those guys that I listed were capable of, of hitting 24, 25, 28 goals. I think it's possible. So I'm not worried about the forward group. You know, I'm not really worried about uh, Jordan Bennington. I know some people down on him the past couple of years, but I still think he's, he's a quality goalie. I think he's top 10 in the league. Um, and, and you look at the backup situation, you know, that's a big issue, I think, but only if it becomes a big issue with an injury to Bennington or poor play. But so to me, it, it's the defense. You, you have some good players there with Krug and Falk and a healthy Pareko and a Scandella. And now you've got, you know, Mikola coming up and Perinovic coming up, but they struggled last year. Uh, and that, that, that group, a lot of those guys are back. And so to me, you know, clearing the front of the net, getting the puck out of the zone, helping out Jordan Bennington. To me, uh, most of the, my focus heading into the season, curiosity is on that defensive group. JR, I always tell you that you were a, uh, a genius when it comes to hockey, and even more so by what you just said there of Bennington being a top 10 goaltender, uh, because we had this conversation yesterday. It was in the athletic that had Bennington, I think it was ranked 12th or 13th among goalies in the NHL, and it was really taken back by that. And I understand he had a bad season last year, and bubble play, he was not great. He was not the guy in 18 19. But I, I'm just I'm really surprised at how many people have dropped Bennington down on the list because he's still a guy that won 30 goals before the bubble started. Won 30 games. Or 30 games, sorry. It'd be impressive. He can score 30 goals. If he scored 30 goals, that'd be a hell of a year (laughs) for him. If he's the first 30 goal scorer, I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah, you got to take that guy. That's that's like uh, Otani, right? In uh, (laughs) in, uh, Anaheim, he's doing it all. My God, that'd be Um, awesome. (laughs) Well, first of all, that's the first thing that's ever been written about the Blues at the Athletic that's wrong. True. Very true. (laughs) I'm kidding. But no, with uh, Jordan Bennington, look, I think. You know, when you watch the league and you know who the, the stars are in terms of the goaltenders at Vasilevsky, Andre Fleury, you know, everybody, I think, looks at Bennington and says, flash in the pan, and we really haven't seen or heard much about him since the Stanley Cup run. And, and, and I do think, you know, he hasn't been up to snuff for, for portions of uh, these past couple seasons and, and the playoffs two years ago in particular. But to me, when you look at the numbers and I've crunched them, he's still among the top five in the regular season in some of these major categories for the goalies. And so to me, that's why I kind of say, you know, stretch it out a little bit and, and say top 10. I still think he's a guy who, you know, if I get an important game, uh, I get have no problem starting him. But, but he's going to be going through his first full season, guys. Isn't that pretty uh, amazing to think yeah. of when you think <laughs> of 
Jordan Bennington. So he does still, I think, have to, to show it a little more and be more consistent. And, you know, Craig Bruby says, you know, find his mojo and play with it. He has to have that. That's what makes Jordan Bennington who he is. But, hey, look at the goalies around the league and, you know, tell me uh, that there's 15 or 20 better than Jordan Bennington, and, you know, I'm just not going to buy it. Amen, brother. He's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. JR, people can find your work over at The Athletic. Follow you on Twitter at JP Rutherford. Hockey season is officially here. If I'm not... The NHL season technically tonight. starts tonight, right? Yeah, on ESPN. Tonight, yeah. Why do the Blues not play till Saturday? Yeah, how about that? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just a court here at the start of the season, but uh, they're enjoying it. We just hung up uh, with Craig Bruby and the players on the Zoom. They're up in Vail, uh, pretty high up there, getting ready for that altitude Saturday against Denver. So I'm not going to mind these extra couple days to prepare for the season, but I know everybody's excited about Saturday. Well, Jared, we can't wait to read your work over at The Athletic. Looking forward to talking everything over with you each and every Tuesday here on BK and Ferrario. Enjoy the, the next couple of days off, and we'll talk to you again soon, man. All right, thanks. Have a good day. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on 101 ESPN. The good thing about them being in Vail is they're not hashtag fearing the deep. What? Can you explain that one to me? They're fearing the altitude because they're not deep. They're high. That one was a fail. Got to be careful with that one. I was going to say the same thing to JR. When you're in Colorado and you're saying they're not deep, they're high. I mean, we we just got to be careful with what we're saying. They're not not deep. They're, they're high up in the mountains. Right. Well, you can join 101 ESPN for a blue season preview this Friday at Copper Fire in Belleville. I think Alex is a little... The Blues are kicking off the regular what? season this Saturday <laughs> to celebrate. We are hosting a day-long live, day-long live broadcast who's high up there. at Copper Fire on Friday. <laughs> you can hang out with me, Alex, and Tanner from 11 to 2. Fastlane will be out there from 2 to 6. And then we've got a live last-minute Blues podcast with Rivers, Donnie, and Burton from 6 to 7 o'clock. Plenty to do 11 to 7 Friday 101 ESPN's Blues season preview at Copper Fire in Belleville. All the details right now at 101ESPN.com It's 117. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers and officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up next, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game about it or forget it here on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's. Bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. You almost started there, didn't you? Learn your lesson, man. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Let's start with this one from the 618. Guys, bet it or forget it. Lamar Jackson wins the MVP once again this year. Man, it's tough competition because Justin Herbert's in the conversation. Dak Prescott definitely is in the conversation. Josh Allen, if if he continues this way, is going to be in this conversation. So I'm going to forget it. um, Because Kyler. Yeah, Kyler is the other one. Yikes, can't believe I forgot him. Got a good football team. Yep. Well, that's true. T-Bone doesn't think yeah. they're undefeated. That The yeah. last win didn't count and Tom Brady. Yeah, he's old. Leads league in passing I'm yards right kidding. now. I'm just kidding. No, I, I'm with you. Easy. I, I, he's like the forgotten man in all of these conversations. Yeah, it's because he's like J.D. Martinez's age. Um, I'm going to forget this one. I, I, I think there's a lot different. There's a lot more competition than what it's been in the past, like where it's just Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes and then everyone else beneath him. Um, I think you got five or six guys who are really fighting for it. So I'm going to forget this. Yeah, I'm going to forget it too. I actually think I like Josh Allen to win it all or win the MVP now. Excuse me. I think he's the 
favorite now, if I'm not mistaken. Did I see he took favorite over the odds when uh, they took down the Chiefs? Makes sense. So I, I think he's the one that I would say wins. And I could get on Justin Herbert as well. I'm just not sure about Lamar Jackson getting the MVP. I, I think it's going to go to someone new this year. I could get behind Dak, too, so I'll forget it. Well, let me see if I can find, let's see here, season awards. Josh Allen, now the favorite at four and a half to one. Kyler Murray. What's next. my Dak number? Dak at six to one. Oh, man, I'm so glad I got it on that one. I did. Dak and Justin Herbert are both at six to one. Tom Brady at eight to one. And then it's Aaron Rodgers and Matt Stafford at nine to one. Wow. Lamar at 12 to one is actually a really good bet. Not as good as... uh. Dak Prescott at what was it plus 1500 yeah I mean that that was a good bet when you made it right now if you were looking at the odds and you were wondering like who's the long shot bet the bet is definitely Lamar if you go over to the FanDuel Sportsbook right now you can get him at 12 to 1 I'm with you guys I would forget it I don't think he's going to win the award but if he continues playing the way that he has so far this year He's definitely going to be in the conversation. And if they're able to beat the Chargers this week, that number is going to go from 12 to 1 to like 6 to 1 overnight. Yeah. So I, I think that he's definitely worthy of at least being in this conversation. And he's had one hell of a season already. Yes, he has. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Guys, bet it or forget it. Nolan Gorman hits 20 home runs for the Cardinals next year. I'm going to forget it. That's a lot, man. I mean, we thought Dylan Carlson was going to hit 20 home runs this year. And I mean, he got close, but he was healthy all season. You know, you really didn't have this long injury stint for Dylan Carlson. So um, 20 home runs for Nolan Gorman to where there's really not an established position for him next year. I'm going to forget this one. Yeah, I think I'm going to forget it as well. 20 just seems like a lot for a guy that's going to get his first taste of the big leagues. I expect him to have kind of a Dylan Carlson-esque season. Maybe either one of two ways. Either it's going to be like 2020 where you see the lows and you have to send him back down and then he can come back up and kind of learn from the experience or kind of like Carlson this year, full rookie mode where it's you get the highs, you get the lows, but he's going to sit right there in the middle, hit about 260 close to that 20 homer mark. Uh, I'm going to bet it if he's up on opening day. So I'm kind of straddling the fence here, but I I am, if he is with the club, if he breaks camp with the club, I think he hits 20 plus home runs next year. I I think the worry for him remains what it has been all along. Uh, Tanner might be right. He goes through some slumps, but those slumps I think are going to be more about the average than it is the power. His power plays. He hit 17 home runs as a rookie in 63 games. He hit 15 home runs in his second year in, in the minors in 120 games. And then last year, once again, 120 games, hit 25 home runs. Now, that's not big league pitching, but at every step he has shown he's a 30-plus home run guy whenever he plays a full season. So if he's in the big leagues next year, I expect 20-plus home runs out of him. I just don't know if he's going to start out the season in the big leagues. One thing I'm curious to see with him is I wonder how his power will translate to uh, St. Louis, to Bush. because. I be- if I'm not mistaken, I believe that most of AAA is very hitter-friendly because a lot of the ballparks are... I think Memphis is specifically, I, I think too. Memphis is very hitter-friendly. I think a lot of the AAA ballparks are, too. you got a lot of those West Coast ones that are out there like But he Colorado did Springs. it in even the lower levels. Like, like he, AA and all he, that. Yeah, he was putting up big-time numbers even at Palm Beach, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, he, hell, if he does that, then yeah, he'll hit 20 for sure. Yeah, so I, I think he's going to be a guy that has the type of power that translates even to Bush. But it is a fair question to ask. Like, how, how is that going to look? He's somebody that I would love to see play in Cincinnati. Like, just bring him up for a Cincinnati series and let's see how he plays at the Great American Small Park. No, just just three-game set. I heard it right here. BK just traded Nolan Gorman to some for probably Nick Cassiano. he said yesterday Bennington's not a good goaltender, too. Yeah, it's true. 12-31. I marked it. Don't worry, boys. Never happened. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for better to forget it. Guys, better to forget it. 
the Cardinals will not sign a player for more than $15 million per season this offseason. Better to forget it. The Cardinals will not sign a player for more than $15 million this offseason. I'll forget this one. I think they're going to sign somebody. I, I don't think it's going to be for $30 million, but I could see them see them signing somebody for 18, maybe 20, if they can find a way to get a, a good deal for one of those shortstops, maybe on a shorter-term deal. Uh, so I'm going to forget this one. I think they I think they do put themselves into the high spending market this offseason. Man, I can't sit the fence on this one because I could see them going with give a guy like a two year, 30 ish million dollar deal. Maybe that left handed fourth outfield bat. I think stop straddling the fence like BK and pick a side. Oh, come on. I think I will say bad. I, I think they'll give somebody that can be a bench bat that can, maybe is a utility guy kind of two two years for 30 to 33 million dollars oh, a bench bat for 30 million dollars 30 million dollar bench bat 15 million a year senor for a bench bat for a <laughs> sure. dude who's gonna signed for six million dollars a year you're Here's gonna give Car- eligible you're gonna give carpenter 15 million dollars aren't you i'm looking to get like one of those fourth left-handed power outfield bats that maybe starts a couple of to games give chuck for- peterson 20 million dollars <laughs> gonna give yeah. kyle schwarber a five-year 100 million dollar deal He's gonna get somebody paid. might <laughs> might be us Hey, I'm fine with it. No, I'm not. That's a lot of money. Well, like, if you, you look at the team, then then where else are you going to do it? I'm I mean, that's so my conflicted. Thing. I am so conflicted. You can't on this. have two straddling the fences on one I, day. I know. I we're going to talk about this coming up on the other side. I don't think I can remember an off season in recent years, this iteration of the Cardinals, where there have been more potential outs for them. And what I mean by that is. They could sign a shortstop for big money, and it wouldn't surprise me. They could sign a pitcher, a frontline pitcher, Max Scherzer even, to big money. wouldn't surprise me. They could sign a back-end starter or multiple back-end starters. That would make some sense. They could go for just pure depth and sign back-end starters, bench bats, and bullpen arms. Okay, yeah, that makes some sense. Fourth outfielders. They could go with a DH, a big-time DH to add in a, a bat there. They could make a big time trade. I mean, there are so many different potential routes to what they could do. Normally, we know going into the offseason, Alex, uh, they need an, a top of the order guy who plays in center field. All right, Dexter Fowler. They need a left handed reliever. All right, Andrew Miller. They need a middle of the rotation starter. All right, they're going to go get Mike Leak. You kind of know going into the offseason what the Cardinals are going to do. I have zero feel for what they're going to do this offseason. So, I'll go ahead and say, because I think it's probably more likely, I'm going to forget it. I don't think they signed anybody for more than $15 million per year, and they they put that money towards a bunch of different players as opposed to one or two. What a hater. I hope. I, I actually don't know. I don't know what I hope they do this offseason. I'm so conflicted on them. I'm kind of with you. <laughs> with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next... I put together the math last night, Alex. Oh, this isn't going to go over well. Anybody double-checked this, by the way? Yeah, nobody double-checked his work. Uh Uh-oh. The projections are out for what the Cardinals are going to have to spend in arbitration. I'll tell you how much they likely have to spend in the offseason coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is exactly where you want to be listening to us. It's PK and Ferrario, live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. He's Tanner Hendrickson, and I'm Brandon Kylie. All right, we've got some projections. I did math, Alex. 
Well, we probably shouldn't do this segment then. MLB trade rumors. It made it easy for me. They posted their projection, ar- projected rather, arbitration figures for the Cardinals. I'm not going to run through all of these guys, but basically the sum of it all is about $20 million. That's what the Cardinals are going to be spending in arbitration this year. When you add that to the players that they already have under contract and you buy out Carlos Martinez, you buy out Matt Carpenter, thank you for all of your services. They are not going to be on the team next year. The Cardinals' current payroll, without making any moves, just bringing back everybody that you can, pre-arbitration or arbitration eligible, it's right around $140 million. That's where you're at right now. The Cardinals have been at roughly 170 to 180 each of the last few years. So that would leave, if they remain around there, 30 to $40 million to spend this offseason. Okay, hold on. Yep. Got all your calculations? Yep. Okay. That's right. The He's Cardinals right. have roughly, if they stay true to form... 30 to 40 million dollars as of today now that could change they could decide to trade a guy like alex reyes who makes three million dollars they've got paul DeYoung, who is making about six million dollars next year that could be a trade candidate for them you've got some moves that could be made that could change that number maybe you get more than that maybe it's 40 to 50 million dollars or maybe you go out there and make a big move and it becomes less there are obviously this can fluctuate throughout the offseason when I say you've got 30 to $40 million to spend going into the offseason, what immediately comes to mind for you? Does that change anything about your expectations for this offseason? Uh, it's pretty obvious. It comes to mind of Max Scherzer and Corey Seager. Okay, well, that seems unlikely. Okay. Um, I think it, I, I'll start out. It eliminates Max, Max Scherzer. Yeah, of course it eliminates Max Scherzer. I, I, I'm still I don't amazed. think he's an option. 50 million. I'm still amazed people even consider that a possibility because he said he's not going anywhere when he goes to the team that he was traded to. But even if he was, if he's going to get 40 to $50 million, what you're basically saying is the Cardinals next year are going to be the Cardinals that you just watched plus Max Scherzer. I, I don't think that's the route that I would go. No. And I, mean, I, I frankly don't think that that's the route that they will go. You're spending what, seventeen million on Wayno? Was it seventeen? Mm-hmm. Seventeen and a half. You're not paying fifty million dollars on top of that with your rotation and set of where you already have Miles Michaelis, who you're paying. You probably don't even want him in your rotation, but you're paying him Hudson, Flaherty, Wayno slash whomever other, uh, whomever else. You're not going to pay a guy fifty million dollars. So yeah, we can rule him out. Yeah, I. I I think with that as the figure, it's hard to tell because we just said, like, would you be willing to spend for a $15 million guy? If your answer is no to that question because you're not going to spend $50 million for a guy off the bench, which honestly is probably a good idea, even though I said that last segment. Uh, <laughs> $15 million on the bench. Then what are you going to do? Are you going to go add, like, 15 to 20 depth pieces to get up to this $30 million? Or are you going to not spend all $30 million coming off of the books? I think... I think you look to try and maybe find that middle-of-the-road guy that's around that $15 million range. Maybe you want to plug him in at whether it's DH because you're not thinking that Gorman's ready, or maybe you're going to get a little creative, you're going to make a move, and you're going to maybe it's a move in the outfield or something like that. Just someone that you think can improve the offense. Maybe you do that, and then you look for some of those uh, depth pieces in the rotation and in the bullpen that you spend that money on elsewhere. See, that's where my solution would be. If you're telling me that's the money, I'm going to find a trade to where I can open up more salary space. I'm going to find a trade to address one of my issues, whether it's starting pitching depth, the shortstop, the big bet you want, and then from there I'll spend the money elsewhere that I just opened up while taking somebody in spend that to build off of the depth. That would be the best case scenario. Yeah, I think this has trade written all over it. It, it feels like the kind of offseason that they get creative, and I don't know who the trade pieces are. I mean, there's there's some obvious ones on the big league roster. 
I think Paul DeYoung's probably going to be traded this offseason, or at least it would make sense that he would get traded this offseason. I brought up his name. I think Alex Reyes is at least a candidate that they'll potentially look at um, as a as a trade piece this offseason because he still has value. He's got two years left under his deal. And if you think he's just going to be a middle reliever for you moving forward, that's probably not the best use of that asset if there are teams out there that still believe he has starting potential and frontline starting potential. So there might be a, a, a potential for uh, a trade there. I think that's probably just about, oh, Andrew Kisner. Andrew Kisner is another one that that could be of interest for other teams, too. So you've got some pieces that might be made available. And your minor leagues are starting to produce guys that are closer to the big league level. Zach Thompson, I have no idea what his future is here in St. Louis. He did not have a very good year this year down in AAA, but could you get something for him? Uh, Some of those other pitchers that are between double and triple A that might not be a part of this team's future. Could they be packaged in a deal to go elsewhere? Those are the kinds of things that I think the Cardinals are going to be looking at. And that's why when I read this from Derek Gould yesterday, it was very interesting to me. He he did his uh, weekly chat over on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch website. He was asked, would it be easier to package Nolan Gorman and Alex Alex Reyes in a trade for a big bat rather than for a starter? You could potentially make a deal for a guy like Jose Ramirez of the Indians. He's 29. He signed for two more years at $11 million and $13 million. Would that make sense in your mind, Derek Gould, for the Cardinals? Derek said, now you're thinking in financial terms that the team would think through. Throw in Matthew Liberatore and you've got the Guardians' attention. If that is the price that the Cardinals are willing to pay, though, I'm not sure. Jose Ramirez could change the look of the Cardinals lineup in many, many ways. He's an uber addition, but the cost would be really high, like potentially more than it costs to get Marcelo Zuna high. He's the type of player that I think makes a lot of sense for them. If you're looking at that 10 to 15 million dollar range, a player that can hit both righties and left handed pitching in that 27 to 30 year old range so in the prime of their careers can play middle infield I don't know that Jose Ramirez is the exact guy that we're talking about but he's the type of player that I think would make sense for the Cardinals he's the exact guy that I would be talking about but I'm not paying that price yeah I I was listening when it was Reyes and Gorman but when you threw Libertor's name in that's where I backed out of this one and frankly if that's the price to acquire something I don't know if you're going to be going out on the trade market because the other guy that makes sense to me is Cattell Marte from Arizona but I think he's going to cost more than what Jose Ramirez costs if you can find a way to fleece Cleveland and get Jose Ramirez and not lose Libertor or Walker those are the two that are non-negotiable for me I'm listening, but as soon as you get into that category, I got to back out of that because I can't fleece that much of my future just for one guy who's here for two years. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I think if Libertor is involved in that deal, I would consider not even doing it. And if I'm being honest, I don't know if I, I find it tough to move on from Nolan Gorman because I think he's going to be the real deal. And I, I think you're looking at a cost control guy. Even if guy, you're getting Ramirez, though? I think I'm willing right now. I mean, you've invested so much in Nolan Gorman. He's been pretty much your prized possession for, what, the last three years, yep. if I'm not mistaken? I mean, at that point, are, do you really just want to all of a sudden hit an offseason and he's on the verge of making the big league club and you say, I need to go get a Jose Ramirez when Nolan Gorman could be the same bat at some point in his career, if not better than Jose Ramirez and play DH for you? That That's how I look at it. I mean, if you want to go get Jose Ramirez, great. I don't know. I, I would understand it, but I find it really difficult to just say, now that we're this close to seeing Nolan Gorman, that I'm going to go, all right, let's throw him in a package now. It's the tough thing, man. 
because you're getting guaranteed production out of a guy like Jose Ramirez. I mean, he could come in next year and be your number two or three hole hitter. <laughs> and be a really good one, too. He'd, he'd be outstanding. He's a legitimate all-star talent who hits 280 for his career, gets on base 35% of the time. He is, in terms of the, the production that you're getting out of him, he's basically Nolan Arenado. Not quite as much of a run producer, but also plays in Cleveland as opposed to Colorado. His numbers are similar to what you were expecting this year out of Nolan Arenado. I'd like to add another one of those guys to the lineup, and it's guaranteed. It's on the back of his baseball card, as opposed to Nolan Gorman, who it's a projection. He might be great. He could be better next year than Jose Ramirez. If you're just looking at him side by side, and one starts for one team, the other starts for the other, it's possible Nolan Gorman ends up being a better player next year than Ramirez. Wouldn't count on it, though. The odds aren't great of it. And so for the next two years, while you're in this winning window and you've got Jack Flaherty for two more years under club control, you've got one more season of Wayno and Yachty. You've got maybe one or two years left of the prime of Paul Goldschmidt's career. Are you going to count on Nolan Gorman to be that guy? Or are you willing to bet on Jose Ramirez being better for the next two years? I think it's an interesting discussion that should be had at a minimum. It is a huge, huge price to pay. Someone texted in and said, it amazes me that Alex doesn't want to trade a possibly or trade Matthew Levitor for a short thing in Ramirez, but he, but he's fine with trading away Nolan Gorman. I think that's where this text is going at. The text is all over the place, but look, I'm, I'm fine moving Nolan Gorman. If I'm getting a Jose Ramirez and I understand you're losing five to six years of control with Nolan Gorman, but it's exactly what you just said. BK. I know what I'm getting in Jose Ramirez. And guess what? If he tears the cover off of the ball for you, probably going to be expensive. But in two to three years, a couple of contracts will be coming off of the books at that time. I believe Paul Goldschmidt's will be up. He's got two years left, three years left. So his will be up around the time that Jose Ramirez comes into play. And then you're looking at, okay, maybe we re-up with Jose Ramirez if he continues to hit that way. I understand losing Nolan Gorman is tough. But I'm not I don't want to take a risk next year of a guy not being able to be a legit hitter in my lineup, whereas I know I'm getting somebody who's going to make the top of my order better. Yeah, these are the tough decisions they've got to make. And by the way, the wrench that's thrown into all of this is we have no idea what the uh, the future of these rookie contracts looks like because the CBA is up this offseason and they could completely throw everything into the wind. It might completely change and that might make Nolan Gorman more valuable it might make him less valuable. So depending on what happens this offseason, that could completely dictate the terms of this kind of a trade as well. It may make a guy like Jose Ramirez less valuable, or it could make him even more valuable on a two-year deal like that. So this offseason is one of the more intriguing ones for the Cardinals in years, and it's because of guys like Nolan Gorman who could legitimately change the complexion of the lineup next year, and it's because they should go into 2022 as the clear-cut favorite in their division. The Cardinals should. And I'm not saying that based on the roster they have today, but based on the roster that we're all projecting they should have going into spring training. If they make the necessary moves, they should go into next year as the obvious favorite in the NL Central. So if they... If they're willing to do that, it's going to take some moves that are a little uncomfortable for the team. Hey, attention, Scott Air Force Base. You should join the Fast Lane this Thursday for a special military appreciation live broadcast from 2 to 6. Service members, families, anyone currently on base, it's a special Fast Lane military appreciation live broadcast Thursday from 2 to 6 o'clock at Scott Air Force Base. It's brought to you by Budweiser in Air Comfort Service Heating and Cooling. We'll cross things over with the Fast Lane coming up next. Time now for the crossover on 101. ESPN.
I'm Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, in particular the Mike Florio interview from earlier today, highly recommend checking it all out on the podcast page at 101ESPN.com. We talked to Florio about his report on St. Louis maybe being interested in an expansion team if the NFL decided to offer that in some sort of a settlement. So check that out. Podcast page 101ESPN.com is where you find it. Time to cross things over with the fast lane. we got Anthony Stalter in studio with us. Stalter, what's going on, man? Boys, how are we doing? We're good. We're good. Um, good game in the NFL last night between great. the Ravens and the Colts. I I had turned it off for a little while, was kind of checking things out, and then saw the score. I went over to the baseball game, and I was like, okay, going to have to go back to the Ravens and the Colts because this one's getting interesting. Lamar Jackson has proved all of his doubters, including myself, wrong. Man, this dude just had the best completion percentage of any quarterback in the history of football that threw at least 40 passes in a game. Best completion percentage ever. Yeah. And the biggest knock against him is, ah, can he can he bring his team to, from behind? He's done it twice. Right. Did it against the Chiefs? Did it last night against the Colts? I, I, I'm done doubting the guy. I, I still don't know if I think the Ravens are a Super Bowl contender, mostly because of the defense. Yeah. Their, their secondary is a concern. But, man, he's he's better than every every possible doubter could have expected. And I, I feel like he's, he's due the credit that he deserves at this point. I'm glad to see it because I wasn't one of those doubters. I know you and I were, were against each other a lot on this, PK, but I always felt like there was more there. I thought the system held him back. Yep. Whereas the system ele- elevates Baker Mayfield's, I don't think the system has ever elevated Lamar Jackson, but Lamar Jackson now he's got he's got a little bit better of a passing game, and we're start we're starting to see that now. You know Baker Mayfield, if if the Browns are down, I mean look at that last drive on on Sunday. He's mm-hmm. limited. W- was that Baker Mayfield or Sam Sam Bradford? Because it's check down city. You need you need to be pushing the ball downfield when you're down when you're down you know with with a minute left to go. Wasted fifty seconds. Just trying to pick up a first down. You need yards. You don't need first downs. And look what Lamar did. As soon as they blocked that field goal last night, what is he doing? He's picking up yards in chunks. It's not about first downs. It is about yards so that you get in the end zone. And Lamar did that, and he did that in overtime too. They pushed the the, the pedal down. The Colts' defense was worn out, and they should have been. And they took advantage. That was a hell of a win last night. Now they got dominated. So you you can kind of go two ways on this. I thought the Colts thoroughly outplayed them. You know, we were talking about this before, and you said, what, 55 minutes of that game? Yeah, basically. And you're right. Mm-hmm. You, your special teams cost you a, a win last night, Colts. And I know that Rodrigo Blankenship was dealing with the hip injury and things like that. But, you know, as soon as they blocked that that field goal, anybody watching was like, oh, boy. It was so, over. So oh, who's boy. the number one team in the AFC then, Stultz? Because I think it's Buffalo. It's Buffalo. Yeah. The Buffalo Bills are the number one team. I needed to see what I saw last Sunday. Because Friday I said, okay, you went through Ben Roethlisberger, Tua for a, for four pass attempts slash Jacoby Brissett, Davis Mills, and then somebody else that wasn't that wasn't very good. Well, then you struggled against or you lost to Roethlisberger. Didn't they play Washington? Yeah, Washington. Yeah, Taylor Heineke. Okay, so th- those are the quarterbacks you face. I wasn't saying Buffalo wasn't good defensively. I just didn't know how good. And then you do that to Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. Yeah, the, you you earned. You're the you're the team now to beat in the AFC. I don't think there is one. Like I, I know this is maybe going to be considered me sitting the fence, but it, it's really not. I promise. And the the reason why I say that is because 
I don't think there's like a a clear cut. This is the team in the NFL this year. If, I don't think that's the case in the AFC or the NFC. I don't think there is a favorite in the way that the Chiefs were for two or three years or that the Patriots were for so many years in the AFC. I think if you told me at the end of the year, one of the Chargers, Chiefs, Ravens, Browns, or Bills, any of those five teams represented the AFC in the Super Bowl, I could see any of them. And I haven't been able to say that about the AFC in 20 years now. I mean, I really do think it's that wide open. Let me ask you this then, and so I'll answer this. If Buffalo doesn't lose that game to Pittsburgh, are you viewing that differently? No. I Look, I, I think, to me, Buffalo is the is the favorite. When you lose, they lost to Pittsburgh. They 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 had no business losing that game. They're right. up ten nothing at halftime. They got a punt blocked. They got they got behind. I think there might have been a turnover at some point too. Pittsburgh's defensive line manhandled Buffalo's inexperienced offensive mm-hmm. line. Otherwise, Pittsburgh didn't move the ball whatsoever. So it was a bad game. It happened to be the first game. So you kind of okay, but you hang thirty five points against what I thought was a good Miami defense on the road. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy to go down to South Beach early on. Tom Brady proved that for years. Absolutely. He's lost the most games. So 35 points there. I I don't have their their schedule in front of me. They scored, what, 40-some-odd points against Washington, another 30-some-odd points against Houston. And so what? Again, the opponents do matter. But then again, 38 points on Sunday night. Seven coming off a defensive interception for a touchdown. I mean, yeah. what what more do you have to prove at this point? They're really good. They're really good. I, I just I feel that way about the Chargers as well. I think there are a lot of really good teams. And the, the reason why I'm not all in on Buffalo just yet, I, I don't trust their quarterback. In, in a big spot in the postseason, I still don't trust Josh Allen to be able to go three straight games without making the what the bleep are you doing, Josh Allen? Sure. Type of a well, play. He had that on on Sunday night when yeah. he took yeah. the sack and then he he, he had the uh, you know, he tried to throw it out of bounds and I, I trust, I know this is weird to say because he's so young, I trust Justin Herbert not to make that play. Yeah, And, and I, I think I'm always expecting Josh Allen to make that one. So that's that's why I'm just still not quite there on they're the favorites with the Bills. If I had to pick one, I'd probably pick the Chargers right now. Yeah, um, But I, I think you could pick, you could have told me, Alex, that you think it's the Browns. And I would Tanner, you that. could have said that you think it's the Ravens. I would have listened. I totally get that. All these teams are flawed. I mean, if you're the Chargers, you gave up. I had the statistic yesterday. You gave up like 500 yards or 400 yards. You created no turnovers. You gave up 40 points. I think it was over 500 yards, 40 points allowed. You didn't force a turnover, and you won that game. You're not winning most of those games. So, you know, the Chargers do have some some flaws. Mm Mm-hmm. Kansas City's flaws are obvious. Yes, they are. You know, Buffalo, Buffalo. What they, are they? Could you guys tell me? <laughs> we uh, start with defense and work our way Jag, over. The Jaguars can score 24 on them. Right. 31. Whoa. Everybody's scoring 30 on them. Uh, Stoltz, what's coming up today on the fast lane, man? We're going to talk a lot of blues. We'll get into the Gruden situation. Love the interview that you guys had with Florio, so we're going to replay some of that and cool. kind of share some of our thoughts there. And, yeah, have a good show. I'm looking forward to that. That's coming up from 2 to 6. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 right here on 101 ESPN. Best case scenario, you get away with this. Those prosthetic legs are pretty expensive, though. Like, you could probably sell it on the black market. You get an arm and a leg for it. Really? Come on, that was good. <laughs>